being a part of innovation, being a part of the creative process and seeing something being built is exhilarating. And um, it's something that since the Midwest helps keep Broadway alive because tourists keep Broadway alive, it, it just made sense to me that like Indiana could be a, a place where great art could start. Hello and welcome to Pave Your Own Path, where I get a chance to speak with driven individuals from various industries to better understand the challenges they face to achieve success. This podcast is intended to inspire others to follow their own passions and to help understand the value that you already bring every day. So let's get started. Hello, beautiful people, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Pave Your Own Path. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Joel Kirk. Joel and I grew up in the same community in Carmel, Indiana, and his passion for creating and directing film was evident since day one. Uh, Joel is the artistic director and founder of Discovering Broadway. Joel, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Now, I got to be honest with you, Joel. I wanted to give you like a two or three minute introduction, but I thought it would be best if we just hear the story from you instead. Um, Sounds good. So, the first thing I like to dive into a little bit is kind of give everyone a better picture of who you are. So could you give us a quick snapshot of your upbringing, what it looked like as far as maybe family life, any extracurriculars you were involved with or community events? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like you said, grew up in Carmel. Um, dad was a minister. So we moved to Carmel. My, my parents were previously in, in Naperville in um, Illinois. And he moved because he was starting a new church. Um, so I, I grew up in a household of leaders. Both my dad and my mom um, were, were leaders of, of a, I don't think my dad would want me to say he's a business leader, but a church is, is a business and it did hire people and it did create opportunities and, and provide something for people. Um, and he was investing in the community. My mom um, would go into failing preschools, preschools that were about to file for bankruptcy and help um, change around their operations. And so she would go from preschool to preschool doing that. Um, I didn't know any of that stuff really growing up. My my childhood was like being in the backyard with a stick, pretending it's a sword, <laughs> pretending to fight demons. Um, I, I remember growing up, I think I was seven when the first like Lord of the Rings movie came out. And it was like the first time I went to see a PG-13 movie and my dad brought me. And it like, of course, I sounded like a nerd talking about it then, and I, I, I am now a, a more confident nerd now. Um, but I remember that being like entirely transformative, and just like the epicness, the storytelling, this musical score, the character, everything about that. It was such a visceral world. Um, and I remember just the way it made me feel as an audience member. And I feel like since I was seven years old, I've been trying to like chase that feeling that I had as an audience member, that excitement, that adrenaline. Um, and I, I've, I've kind of been the same seven-year-old ever since. Like I've always wanted to be a, a director. Like you said, it really started in film, doing short films and, you know, stealing my dad's camcorder um, when he wasn't using it or recording us during some family event, getting my brothers to do what I tell them to do. A lot of the early stuff I created, uh, all the short films were basically imitation. And there's a really interesting theory out there that a lot of your early art, if you're an artist, um, or if you're an entrepreneur, or if you're an innovator, 
is imitation. And only as you progress and develop your own personality are the things you're imitating starting to shed away. And then you kind of find the thing that's yours. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it's kind of how we learn language is we, we repeat, we imitate um, someone else saying a word like mama or dada. Um, so it would, it would kind of stand to reason that if you're an actor, um, if you're a business leader, if you're into sports, it's because you watched someone, you observed it, you wanted to um, substitute yourself into that person or into that feeling or into that energy or identity. Um, and so for a while, you're imitating, you're imitating, you're imitating. Like the first short film I, I made with my brother, um, it was like a, some spinoff of like a Twilight Zone episode. It was like, when the world is slanted. And we just took a tripod and lowered one of the legs. And so like I would be holding onto a table and it would just look like I was like hanging on the edge of a building and he would like roll ball <laughs> in the opposite direction. It was all just magic. It was all this fun of like, how do we communicate this idea effectively and that and that's how i talked as a seven-year-old i was like how do we communicate this idea <laughs> um but i mean it really was just about like fun and feeling and the feeling of fun and the feeling of doing something that's compelling and then kind of just trying to impress people um when you show something to someone i've always said that like theater film television um what's now more commonly known as content online all of it is show and tell and so when you're when you're deciding this is something I want to offer people, this is something I want to um, show people, um, it, it it makes sense that like from an early age it was all about just trying to impress or trying to impress classmates or trying to um, impress family. And of course, everything I I, I made um, was terrible, but I I thought it was like amazing. Um, and so I just did that for for years. And the like second movie I made was called Planet Wars. So you can probably guess what I was stealing from there. Um, and it just continued. Like I, I, in middle school, I before youth group, I um, got a bunch of the kids that were in the youth group together an hour beforehand, and we created like a three season show with like twenty one minute episodes of a show called The Mailman that was a clear spinoff of The Office. And we just used the offices at the church. My dad would let me and the the youth group team and myself would write these episodes. Um, again, a lot of them were clear imitations, like an episode about Halloween, an episode about a firing. And, um, and it just taught me all those skills of like, if you want to do something, just do it and figure it out. And um, I was way, I feel like I was more ambitious as a kid because I was like just telling people what to do i was like you're gonna be this you're gonna hold the camera you're gonna do that um and uh now there's like it feels like even though i am still a, a lobbyist always trying to get people involved in a project trying to get the right team and resources around them um the process of lobbying is is it, it's it's way more delicate because I'm, I'm being way more ambitious than doing movies in my basement right these are now multi-million dollar projects so um, yeah, I mean, my, my, again, my upbringing was really great, had awesome, awesome parents. Um, my dad being like a minister, I would go to church and like sit in the back and be like taking notes and like, we'd be on the drive home and I'd be like, dad, that joke would work, but you've got to pause before the punchline. You know, like I was kind of directing him. Um, and he loved it. He loved talking about it. He, he was, you know, my brothers and I are really lucky to have an awesome dad that like, is just always down to down to play and down to down for feedback, which I don't know if any of us are. <laughs> I don't know if any of the brothers who are all alpha males uh, have inherited that 
um, humility in the same way. Um, but like, you know, that in that same vein of like having fun and enjoying life, like all of these, all of these films and then what's turned into theater and doing both at the same time, it was just about like, um, drive, um, dedication, determination, ambition, all that stuff is really easy. What's really hard is finding something you would like die for. And, um, that, that's kind of the, the difference for me is like a lot of stuff about my upbringing. Like it felt like life or death and the projects I work on now feel totally like life and death. And when you do find those, those stories you love, the actors you love and you really want to work with or something that you just think is going to um, really be rewarding for people to see that's a worthwhile show and tell um, you're like willing to <laughs> go completely um, crazy and give all of your time and all of your energy and all your focus to it. So long answer, short question. Childhood was great. Um, hey, that was a great snapshot. <laughs> no, you're, <laughs> you're doing that well with stick. <laughs> that yeah. <is> awesome. <laughs> uh, well, real quick, because I'm so curious, and I really hope we can watch these. Where can we find those short films? Mm. And don't tell me it's not possible. Oh man! So um, I, it's actually so funny because uh, I'm gonna botch his name. Everybody tells me that it's pronounced differently. Uh, M Night. Uh, it's like Shyamalan or Shyamalan, the guy who did uh, Sixth Sense and you know, amazing yeah. filmmaker. I remember the first movie of his I watched, Unbreakable on the like extras he had all of these home videos and i was like i am gonna keep all my home videos so i can do that i i will say i i wish i could find them we our house actually had a flood in eighth grade and actually this is you your question has led to another like big pivotal moment in our family's life that like we probably haven't fully processed (laughs) which was like in eighth grade our house like there's a pipe on the second floor bathroom and like our house flooded and all of my videos, um, VHSs, for anybody who's listening, I don't know if you know what a VHS is, but all we have all like I, I wanna say without being hyperbolic, like eighty VHSs of different movies that I had made, um, that all got destroyed in the flood. And I remember walking downstairs knowing because like we walked in our house and water's just coming down <laughs> from the second story. We're like, that's not normal. So I my immediate impulse, again, as like a, a kid is like, my things. So I ran downstairs. And just like saw all the water ruining all of these VHSs. And I didn't, I remember like not getting mad, not getting sad. I just like watched and um, we like all got in the car. Like my mom cried. We like went to a hotel. We all had our own little moment. Um, but like, I remember just, cause I remember my dad being like, are your movies ruined? I was like, I think I said something like, it doesn't matter. Um, and it doesn't, you know, like I, I, in many ways, when you like are so critical of all of your work, you're like, good riddance, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna be better next time. Um, but I will say all of the movies I made in middle school and high school with so many of the people, you know, growing up, like Josh Knox and Blair Palma and, uh, Lydia Clark, um, Riley Rapp, like all these people that like I just like bothered and was like, we should do this or <laughs> some class assignment that I was forced to do. And so I just told people what to do. Like I have all of those and they're hilarious. Cause like it, it's one of those things where there's clear craft, like the way we edited these sword fight scenes between me and Josh Knox. Like, I remember we had these plastic swords and we just, the way it was edited with these great sound effects and we had like this fake blood on the tip of one of the swords 
and we did a close up where like I slash his neck, and you're watching you're watching like this movie that you're like, oh, this is like oh, some cute kid made this movie, and then it gets very dark <laughs> very fast, and you're like, whoa! <laughs> and I remember showing that to my class and like Mr. Warren freaking out. Um, yep. <laughs> but you know, he knew all of us were all right because we're in the classroom watching it. So I, I was always that person that because there was that forced um, reward system in there of like, you've got to show the class at the end, like your Romeo and Juliet scene that you recorded. It was always this challenge of like, I am going to blow these people away <laughs> <laughs> or, or it'll be death to me because my identity was in the quality of the work and still is. And I'm working on that. But um, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some videos. I remember a video that has not aged well at all. Um, which was in, did you do speech class? Did we all have to do speech class? Uh, I found a way to get around it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, um, I spoke I'm my way out of it. I'm just, yeah. Well, so 10th grade, we, we had an assignment in speech class, which was how to, you had to give a how to speech. And I don't know where I got this idea, but I was like, I'm going to ask the teacher if I can do a how-to video. And at that point, like my first speech went really, really well. And so she was like, okay, I trust you. Like, this is abnormal, but like, go for it. And, and it was, um, a tutorial, a 10 step tutorial called how to get a girl. And I, had no business creating a how to get a girl. Um, but that was the joke. Like to me, the joke was like, this is anti self serious. Like you're going to hear Joel Kirk talk about a subject. He has no business talking about. And it was, it opens with me like dressed up in a tux talking to the camera. Like imagine like fireplace with huge bookshelves. And you're like, what is going on? I got like wine in my hand. I'm like 15 years old. And I'm like, hello, and welcome to this tutorial. In these 10 minutes, I'm going to teach you how to get a girl, how to keep a girl, and how to get rid of a girl. And it, like, walks through all the stages of, like, ways men and women behave. And it was it was actually, like, a very pro-women. Like, it was the, – the punchlines were, um, like, men are idiots, and, like, the women are the straight guy. You know, like, they, they are – the ones getting the laugh because the guys are being these idiots. However, if you watch it now and you don't understand that the men are the punchline, it just looks so awful. But I like watch it now and I like can't believe that I showed this to my class and that everybody liked it at the time, which is, I don't, I don't know if there's a lesson in there. I mean, those of us who are creating projects that have a lot of money attached to them and a lot of people's reputation attached to them, we're hyper aware of the high wire we act with not trying to offend people and trying to make our message clear. Um, but you know, we had a smart class of people who understood that like Joel's doing this to be a buffoon and there's, there's no question he's single. <laughs> I, I, if I wasn't before that video, I was after that video. <laughs> well, no, you, I mean, uh, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about is I remember being in middle school, high school and you being the person who everyone was so excited to watch your episode because you knew there was going to be like a crack of a celery in the background, which indicated somebody's bone breaking. Um, so, <laughs> so no, I, I love that you talk about that. Um, right. That's right. We did those those Spanish videos we had to make. Every single one of them, I was like, because this was when we had Prison Break was out, 24. Those were the two shows, um, I think, during like middle school. And we had the Spanish assignment. And I was like, okay, 
all of these guys in our movie are going to be gangsters. <laughs> Again, they're like white Joel who knows nothing about that world. Like, this is where you beat him to a pulp. And we're like 12 years old and the principal's getting very concerned. <laughs> Those were the days, Matt. Those are the days. Oh, yeah. Um. Now, at the time, obviously, Lord of the Rings was a huge inspiration for you mm-hmm. when I was seven years old. Um, was there anybody in particular that was inspiring to you as an artistic director or somebody who you saw as a mentor that you could go to and ask any question to? You know, um, or did Joel just say, you know what? I don't know what a gangster is, but I'm going <laughs> I'm to I'm have Josh Knox portray one. That's right. I was like, Josh probably knows more about that. World. <laughs> or Josh was like, I've got this, Joel. Um, I'll be with you. Um, I, you know, again, it kind of goes back to that idea of like imitation of like, where do you, um, steal your ideas and make them your own? And I, I remember, um, Tracy Letts who won the, the Pulitzer prize for his play, August Osage County. And he was in Lady Bird and an amazing actor and writer. Um, he gave this awesome like Ted talk a couple of years ago and he said, steal everybody does it it's your own when it goes through you and kind of like comes out through the filter that is how you would do it so you know you can learn um a a monologue or an acting scene and see somebody else do it and say wow it's amazing but once you start doing it it's it's going through you so you can imitate for a while but eventually those imitations start to chip away just as you start to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and make it your own so you know i i imagine the writers of prison break in 24 might not actually know that much about being gangsters you know what i mean like that's what's so interesting is it's like you we all have these sources where we get ideas from and and the order in which we learn those things informs how we understand those things one way i've like thought about it is like we're all snowballs that like start at the top of a mountain and like fall down and we get bigger and bigger and bigger as like we pick up all of this snow that is information whether it's information from a breakup information from a job promotion information from a a life event or family event um and certain things stick to us and then they fall off all over again um, you know, we might pick up a new belief that's meaningful to us for six months and then we don't believe it anymore. Or we might, someone might enter our life that is this snowball and then leave and come back. Um, and so I think with all of those creativity things, I, I never felt early on restricted by <laughs> facts <laughs> or authenticity. It was like, if I dreamed up a world that could exist and it was compelling enough audiences would be um, willing to follow me if what I was presenting them was interesting. And I think, I think that's also something I'd like need to keep coming back to as I get older and um, more knowledgeable about things that don't work is every year I try to work with more and more impressive people. And I always try to be the least experienced, least impressive person in the room. And that's not um, hard, (laughs) you know, um, And I remember like when I moved to New York and was directing theater, I think for like the first 10 projects I did, I was the youngest person in the room and I was the director. Um, Because, you know, most plays don't have kids in them because when you have a kid, you need the guardian to be in rehearsal. And that creates a whole logistical nightmare sometimes for just producers. And it's just easier to, you know, once people are 21, um, 
you know, they've gone to college, so they're experienced actors, they've had training. So it's it's not, you know, a surprise that most movies, most TV, most film um, are about people in certain age groups or, or older. Um, but I remember once I started being in rooms with celebrities or actors I knew or actors who had like won Tonys, I was like self-conscious all of a sudden and was like, oh wait, if I say something stupid or if I say, or if I have an idea that they don't like, it was all of a sudden death to me. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm worthless. I'm da 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 um, Or the opposite was it would become a fight of like, no, you've got to do this because da 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 And something that has taken me a long time to learn um, is that like, I don't have to have all the answers um, and that like probably the greatest moments of storytelling that I've been a part of in my twenties have all come out of a divine accident that comes from an actor, um, either like making a mistake that is brilliant. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. No, no. What if he does trip on that line or no, what if this person does stutter or, and it's like when I wasn't listening to everybody around me, it was only ever going to be as good as it was in my head. Um, so for the longest time, I was kind of a puppeteer. I was like, Josh, do this. You know, we're like, we're going to do this shot or we're going to do this. Um, and that made sense because Josh wasn't trying to be an actor, but I was always trying to be a director. Um, but by the time you're like directing shows at Juilliard with these these actors who are exquisite and they're thinking about theories of acting and how to get into a scene 24-7, or you're, you're working with very experienced actors that you just saw in House of Cards or Breaking Bad, um, it, it would be foolish to not say, here's my idea. And if they disagree, say, well, let's try that. Let's play. Let's, you, you take that. You, let, let's see what we can build together. Um, that idea of together um, has, is probably going to take me all my life to learn just because um, there's so much at stake for the director. And you, I have found that like when I give up a lot of that kind of authority over a space or, or like control freak um ness that many times it doesn't go well and and then it's hard to bring something back i know i'm talking in it kind of vaguely and i want to give a specific am, am, uh like example of this um, no i i think what you're saying it, 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 as far as for me to make it relatable to me and everybody listening can make it relatable in their own terms it's just your willingness to learn um, I know when I go into a business meeting and everybody's, uh, everybody's wearing suits, we make up these ideas in our heads that they might be more important. They might be scarier and all these other things, but it sounds like what you've learned is to understand this person knows their craft. I'm going to listen, hear what they have to say. And at the end of the day, these are just people just like you and I, at the end of the day, they go home, they hang out with their dog, cat, they make a meal. They're just people. So all right. we can do is learn from each other. I love that you're saying that though, but yeah, you can continue. Right. Like I remember one of the first things I directed when I uh, moved to New York. Um, I, I mean, my, my journey was um, everyone's journey is very specific to them. And so like, even when people say I went the normal route, you know, I do the nine to five, duh, 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 duh. no one's route is the normal route because no one's nine to five is the same nine to five. It's not the same employer. It's not the same experience with the same job. Um, so I do think everyone has a very unique path. Mine, I was at, Ball State University for two years and um, I think it was actually two and a half years. And then I took an internship in New York, was making 10 bucks a day, but I was in the center of it all. I was at an organization called New Dramatist, which is an amazing nonprofit organization that 
um, hundreds of the world's like most experienced, most lauded writers apply for this residency program and seven people get in and they have seven years where um, whenever they call up the organization and they have a play or they have a musical that they want to hear out loud with, you know, the best of the best actors and the greatest directors, um, they get that and they get that resource and that time and that space. So like the, the like first day of that internship, I was like 20. Uh, I couldn't even drink yet. And I was like trying to make life kind of happen in New York. I walked into a room and Reed Bernie was there and he walks up to me and I was like, how do I know this guy? And I was like, oh my gosh, you're the vice president on House of Guards and you're in this movie and that movie. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm Reed. It's nice to meet you, you know? And, and I was like, who cares who I am? You're Reed Bernie, you know? And like, it was such a helpful demystifying seven months at that place because everybody who was everybody came in and they were making 10 bucks a day to help a writer understand what they were trying to write. And, um, you know, for them, there's the benefit of if they do great in the role and if the play gets produced, they're obviously top choice. Um, but also that writer's probably writing, uh, you know, an episode of TV right now or working with Netflix or, or has a show on Broadway or, um, is doing a feature film or so it, it, it is, that that was so helpful for me to kind of like make an idiot of myself as early on as possible. And I still do. And I still make mistakes, but um, I remember meeting him. And then a year later I was directing him and we, we were, we had one day to rehearse the script. It was a brand new place. So we had six hours and he had just won a Tony award for the Broadway play, the humans and his co-star who was 15 at the time was just Tony nominated for the musical fun home, which had won best musical. And so I'm like sitting down with like these two legendary actors and everybody wanted to come see the presentation of the play. It was what we call a reading. So the play was read at music stands. So there's really only 50 people that get to come see it. And there was a press release about it and everybody was freaking out. And uh, I think this was like one of the first things both of them were doing right after their shows. Um, and I remember after our first rehearsal, the writer and I sat down and we had to present the show the next morning and we had an hour of rehearsal before we were presenting it to people. And the writer and I sat down and I was like, I think this is 20 minutes too long, <laughs> which is not a great thing for a writer to hear or a director to say. And he was like, I think you're totally right. And so I was like, here's our assignment. We go home tonight. We meet up at Starbucks at you know 5 a.m. And we cut what we have to cut and we add moments that we have to add. And we pull in these actors an hour before and we get as much done as we can because we're here to develop this play um, and it's in development. And an hour sounds like enough time to tell people about, you know, 20 pages of cuts. It is not. And we were keeping like some pretty powerful people in the hallway, <laughs> uh, like past the time the reading was supposed to start. And again, I was at that point, 21 years old. Um, and I remember Reed, like, I, I love working with Reed. He always has a strong point of view. Um, he always says what he's thinking. And like 90% of the time, it's like not only brilliant, but like the whole room just like leans into listening because he has so much experience. Um, and I remember him saying something of like, you know, I've, my character needs to acknowledge that like the mom 
is the mom comes to pick up the daughter at the end and he like in the play just doesn't acknowledge her as she honks and he as a human was like i can't justify why i'm not saying one minute denise or or hold on one second i just have to say goodbye um and like we actually didn't have time to write that line in so we're doing the reading and that moment comes and i in my brain i'm like oh dang it we didn't we didn't add that line and reed like stands up and is like "Uh, one minute denise and he just kept going and like he had totally put it into the fabric of the character and already made a decision. And, and it like was so, um, theater has this weird rule where like the playwright is, is like God, what they have written, thou shall not change. And I think it's weird because most playwrights find that to be kind of weird. They're like, Hey, I'm still figuring out what I'm writing. I want recommendations. I want to hear, I want to learn. Um, but we've now lived in a, a time where, um, because writers have been taken advantage of for so long and those stories have surfaced that like we, we go into these processes where we're very rigid and I'm very protective of, of writers. But in that moment I was like terrified because I was like, Oh no, maybe right. Ray will, the writer will be really ticked off at this. And it was great. And it took me two years to realize that like Reed actually did the right thing that like that scene doesn't make sense if he doesn't say that. But it, it like in that moment I was frustrated because I was like, Oh Reed, you shouldn't add words. Like this is Ray's play. You, should, you know, um, so even, even now I'm learning th- about things that happened years ago. Where I'm like, huh, I was wrong. You know, and I send Reed an email and I'm like, Hey, you were right about that thing. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, yeah, I, you know, every year I look back and I'm like, Oh man, I wish I hadn't, you know, felt like I needed to be so performative as a director. I was, yeah. I was speaking so much cause I was compensating or I was, um, you know, n- not, not willing to throw out all this stuff that I had planned because I loved what I had planned and I wanted it to work. And um, so, so yeah, it's uh, that the question you asked was actually about like, how did I learn how to write games? Um, well, no, I, 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 now I'm more curious, like you're 21 years old. Um, how did it feel to be a part of this environment? You know, going from having a stick be a sword in your backyard to <laughs> make these big decisions. How, how does that feel? I mean, I don't know um, what your like childhood was like the like Christmas Eve, the day before like opening up Christmas gifts. But like at my house, it was like you did not sleep and you were so excited. Uh, and that that's exactly how it felt because we, it was like going from zero to 60. It wasn't like, oh, he's going to direct this like off, off, off Broadway thing. It was like, okay, you're going to do an industry reading for um, these producers who's musicals you grew up listening to um they are the american theater um these two stars are you know what what's selling a lot of tickets and why a lot of people are coming to new york um and this playwright has entrusted you with their their play um so at one point it was terrifying because the stakes are high but more than terrifying like it was so exhilarating because um like i was like who am i to be doing any of this and to be working with these people um and, and I, how do yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry no continue no, no no i mean i was just i think that idea of like anti-self-seriousness i remember another idol i had like growing up in college was like conan o'brien and i can't remember when he like lost the tonight show um and like had a total like 180 with his life and reinvented himself and went on and did just wonderful crazy creative things but I remember like listening to some interview 
um, with him talking about his experiences at Harvard. And he was like, he got to Harvard, he knew he didn't belong there, and he totally felt out of place. He felt like a fraud. Um, but like one thing he's lived by is like being anti-self-serious. And when he said that, I was like, yes, that's what the How to Get a Girl movie was all about. That's what, um, you know, Planet Wars was about. That's why I was goofy in the room with Reed and Sydney because like they're legends. And like, if you treat them like legends, you're going to suffocate them. And they're going to be like, yeah, why am I, you know, being led by this 21 year old, you know, instead being like, hey, let's play. Let's have fun. Let's try stuff. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not the end of the world. It's a new play. They get that. These producers are... So I I do remember being surprisingly goofy in the rehearsal room and that that lightened everybody up because those directors come in as like authority who like say everything that they say is perfect and everything that um, they believe should be believed. You know, like that's... That is suffocating because it means they don't need everybody else to be there. They don't need everybody else's ideas. They don't need everybody else's interpretation. And it's, you know, if anybody who's listening to this has ever had a boss that's um, totalitarian, you know that fear of walking into work and being like, I wonder what he thinks about how I like look today or how I wrote that email or that dread of like waiting for a phone call or um, that's not how humans are supposed to, to be, I don't. I don't believe that is um, how we're designed to be. That that to so just like live in fear. I don't. I I can't think of any great thing I've created or done that came from fear. Um, and yeah. So I I I, I do remember like walking in that room and being very fearful. Um, but that like the fun of it, and and that comes from Reed and Sydney too. Like they're just so willing to play and try things and make fun of themselves and um and i and a lot of it is they kind of have to because you know they're under a lot of pressure too they knew that every producer that was coming to that reading was coming because of them um nobody knew who i was then nobody knew who ray nelson the writer was then um so i do think that helps alleviate things you can be very serious about what you're doing and take it with the utmost seriousness and enjoy it and have fun. Um, Cause I, if you can't have fun, like theater and film and TV are just like, they're, they're terrible yeah. <laughs> industries to go into if you're not going to um, have a ball doing them. Cause they're so hard and none of us really know what we're doing. You know, there's, there's an outline, yeah. there's a general process that's the same, but um, nobody who goes into writing a Hamilton or a next to normal or a wicked knows that it will become a wicked or an extra normal or a Hamilton. Um, so yeah, it's really, and I guess that's, that's true of anybody, you know, anybody who has radical success kind of looks back and is like, I just loved what I was doing and I believed in it. Um, I did not know that this company would be sold for $2 billion. <laughs> yes. You know? No, I mean, uh, I think a lot of what you're saying is very true with how I feel as well, as far as, uh, I feel like a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, um, even managers who feel if their plan doesn't go in place of how they originally had it, they're going to be upset. And I mean, uh, my manager always says event plus outcome equals the result. So if you have an event take place, you can choose to be pissed off about it and do all these things that aren't productive or like what you're saying, you can just learn from other people. You can learn about what's going on and change it for the best. Um, I love yeah. that you mentioned that. 
Yeah, that that reminds me. Like when I, so when I, I, I was like 24, 25, I um, went back to Indianapolis uh, after being in New York for a couple of years for um, a project I was working on with my older brother. And it was during the summer. And during summer is like a dead time in New York for theater in general. You know, the it's actually a low time for tourists to be in the city the big the big time is uh winter and spring um and so i was going back because i was like eh, there's not like a lot of work going on and we had a project that we were really excited about doing and when i was there i uh saw the palladium again and hadn't seen it since i was 18 and was like wow you've got this huge musical concert venue you've got this incredible community great quality of life lots of talent lots of successful leaders here um, and this was around the time when I was starting to get involved in pre-Broadway musicals and plays. And the process of getting a show to Broadway is, it's different for every show, but it's a long and expensive process, as you can imagine. Um, and I, I had that, I, I had the first idea for discovering Broadway, um, which is this nonprofit I founded and run. And it's, the mission statement is, um, to bring pre-Broadway musicals, so musicals that are in development and on, that are Broadway-bound, to Central Indiana to incubate, so that they're then presented as concerts for the first time to Hoosier audiences. And the whole idea was Hoosiers never get to see anything first; um, they, they get to see it last. A show will open like Hamilton, and it'll come through Central Indiana in 2019. You know, five years later, and it's different cast. And while that's wonderful and needed and important, being a part of innovation, being a part of the creative process and seeing something being built is exhilarating. And um, it's something that since the Midwest helps keep Broadway alive because tourists keep Broadway alive, it, it just made sense to me that like Indiana could be a, a place where great art could start. So, but I remember it was not discovering Broadway when I started. It was something called like Midwest Arts Festival. And it was totally different, and it was nothing that I wanted it to be. Um, it was convoluted. It was too big. It had too many components to it. And I remember, just like you're saying, an event happened where a producer was talking to us about a very high-profile new musical that was based on a movie that, if I mentioned it, everybody would know it. And I, I was like, yes, we'd, we'd love to bring that out. And he was like, well, how about we bring it out in like three months? And at that point, we didn't have much of an organization. We had a few board members, we had donors, uh, we were, we'd filed our 501c3, but hadn't gotten it yet. And I, I remembered like talking to my team and saying, you know, can we do this? And they're like, we can try. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we dropped every other component of the nonprofit business off. And we're like, let's just focus on the musical and bringing a new musical once a year. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened because I was being crushed by all of these ideas that I had created that I thought would make other people happy about an organization that they would want in their community. But if I had just stuck to what I was really excited about, the people would have come, the followers, the leaders, the partners, they would have eventually come into place. And so yeah. I, I look back on that time. I was like, wow, I wasted a lot of time. And of course you learn, you learn, you learn. But people like me are like, no, you fool. Um, and I've, I've something that I'm a theme that's run through my life is um, taking the longest route to get somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of it is fear of just asking for the thing. And, and um, like there's, 
the what something I did when I first moved to New York was I sat down with every director I could get a hold of that was well respected, renowned, had Tony Awards, was working in TV and film, and I asked if I could assist them. And the issue with asking like the most famous directors if you can assist them is one, if they are famous, there's an assistant that's been working with them that really works with them, that they trust, that it's taken time for them to trust, that for wonderful, obvious reasons, they don't want to get rid of. The other side of it is if they don't have that person and they're somebody who believes that everybody should get the opportunity to assist and so they don't want to hold on to an assistant, um, they want to have as many different assistants as possible, there's a very long line of people waiting. And there's a very good chance that most of them went to Harvard or Yale, um, or have a master's degree in directing, um, or have been in the city for five plus years, or they're like 45 and they've had professional directing careers because it's Broadway. Um, and those are, you know, sometimes they're $6 million shows and sometimes it's Spider-Man and it's $79 million shows. So I remember none of those doors opening and I mean, none of them. Um, and eventually I assisted and got in, but I remember thinking like, wow, I, I've been fortunate enough to connect with the best and the brightest and I can't get any of them (laughs) to like, let me assist them. And the other thing was like, I didn't want to be annoying. So I asked them once and when it didn't work out, I actually didn't really circle back to them for months. And when I asked people who had been successful at assisting what they did. They were like, oh, I just annoyed them respectfully. You know, I was like, hey, I'm not dead. Like, I'd love to still work for you, whatever it takes. And I realized, like, I just didn't... Now, I mean, my positioning is totally different. It's like, I want to assist you for free. And the minute that you know I'm not being paid, you should fire me. And I won't put it down on my resume. I have nothing to gain from it but knowledge. And... um I want to learn how to make your life easier, but more importantly, I want to learn how to earn your trust between now and if that opportunity presents itself. And I think if I had gone in asking those questions of how do I build this person's trust? um, And and that being said, you know, trust is kind of everything. And, you know, I, I look back on early career and like what I want in the future and like, people like me who become fixated on, Hey, the show's got to look like this, or my life's got to look like this, or my career's got to look like this. Um, when I make mistakes and when I, um, when a show doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to, or an opportunity doesn't, or like something like an assistantship, um, it like, I don't let that go. (laughs) I, you know, I like let it. And, for some people, like they, I, I really want other people to be able to let that go. And for me, it actually really helps me to let, not let some of that stuff go because it gives me this sense of drive that like I can be what I'm not. I can impress that group that I haven't impressed. I can, um, you know, jump to the front of the line and be a worthwhile assistant. I can gain people's trust. And I do think like if there's anything I've learned in the past year, it's that no is closer to yes than never. Never is actually really far away. And that no is so often um, one of the steps to yes. And what no often means is I don't see the same thing you see right now. I'm not in a position right now 
to join this or to make this partnership happen or to fund this thing or to get behind this idea, or it's, I need more proof of concept, keep me on the journey. And what has amazed me is like my, my mentor, Joanna Taft, who runs the Harrison Center in Indianapolis. She's a genius. Um, she's been a part of so many incredible initiatives in Indianapolis and is just like, like my best friend. Like when I met her, I think it was like 24. It was the first time I was looking at somebody that made me feel like I made a lot of sense because she, I say this with love because I'm, uh, if she listens to this or not, um, <laughs> she, she is like a robot. Like she is always working. She's always being productive. She's always thinking about the next step. She's always connecting people. She is always um, on. And I'm that way. And I was like, am I a robot? Am I broken? What's up with this? How do other people relax? How are other people normal? How do people watch Netflix? How do they do that? You know, like, how do they just... And when I met her, I was like, I'm not alone. Like, I... And, and she's successful and everybody respects her and she's incredible and she's brilliant, you know? So like she, she just instantly be, became my best friend. Um, and so to answer the question about mentors, like I don't actually have a lot of directing mentors and growing up in Indiana, there weren't the directors that I wanted to learn from. Um, they weren't there because Hollywood movies weren't being made there and Broadway wasn't being made there, but there were amazing directors that I did learn from like Karen Kessler and Bill Jenkins um, and, and other people at the awesome arts institutions that are in Indiana that helped make that art scene really strong. Um, and I interned there. I created an internship at a theater just because I wanted to learn and, and was like, Hey, I'll work for you for free. Um, so again, that, that drive to, um, learn and when people say no and how that um affects me it it makes me want to say oh but someday i am gonna be worth your time and someday i am gonna make something that you're gonna like and someday i am gonna um and don't get me wrong there's like really negative <laughs> side effects to that um but for the most part like if i can say that with a smile and it's done in a good spirit of like i think we we live in a cancel culture right now and because things are so personal what people make is personal content is personal people's careers are personal their relationships are personal and we're sharing more of our personal lives everywhere on instagram and on facebook everything becomes deeply more felt um one thing that i i am glad is not a part of me and that i i hope to see more of in people is like this idea that when somebody says no or isn't interested in you or don't doesn't want anything to do with you I remember like growing up and seeing people be like, well, forget them, you know, like cancel them, get them out of your life. Like you don't need them. They're not. And there's like this banish effect of like banish anybody who doesn't agree with you or like you or, and we see this every year during elections where people just unfollow and unfriend people because they disagree. And I just think that's like the worst thing for humanity. I think um, saying that um, even because somebody doesn't like you, that they, um, shouldn't be in your orb of existence is so such a bad thing for your yeah. soul um because so yeah there's so many but, things that you can learn from their walk of life even if you don't agree with them right right and how often have we like misunderstood somebody that we're like oh this person hates me it's like no they just like process internally and they they're shy like there's so many people who work in theater that i thought hated me who are just shy <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> because I'm loud, you know? And I'm like, well, if they're not loud too, they must hate me. Um, yeah, I, I like to say that like a lot of it goes back to those formative years about like trying to have fun, trying to impress classmates who it's like, I'm never going to be a basketball player. I'm never going to live a lifestyle that, that they're living, or I'm never going to have this shared interest. But for the five minutes that I have their attention in class and in presenting them something, I want it to be awesome and memorable. And that, that's all I need. I just need that five minutes where we're in proper revolution with one another, experiencing and sharing something. And that's why people love concerts and theater and film and, and the experience of being in harmony with people. Like when you go watch a comedian and everybody is laughing, it's that like, Oh my gosh, we're all experienced. We all heard that. <laughs> like he just said that, <laughs> or she just did that. Um, and it's about sharing that and that, um, that we, uh, yeah, I think that idea of like never shutting, shutting people out within reason, of course, there's, there's plenty of good reasons again with certain people to, um, and, and some relationships, but if it's, but if it's for something as, as, as mundane as, oh, they don't approve me or, oh, they didn't cast me or, oh, they didn't share my video or, oh, they didn't, um, hire me. That doesn't always equal they hate me. It's like, how many people do you hate? How many people do you even have time to think about hating? <laughs> oh, you just befriended that person on Facebook that just took time out of your life. Right, right. <laughs> like, uh, come on. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you ever have, um, do you ever let those closed doors or those um, things that don't pan out it, are those crushing to you or do you, or do you use that as fuel or how, how do you experience those like life disappointments when it comes to like career or? Yeah. Own- so no, that's a great question. It's been, I mean, as far as back to what you were saying earlier, it's just, it, we all start off knowing nothing and what you're saying before is true. We imitate until we hone our own craft. And one of the things that used to happen to me in middle school and high school is I used to listen to my friends about, not talking to a certain person because, oh, don't talk to Joey. He's not fun to hang out with. And if your name is Joey and you went to my school, this isn't about you. Um, <laughs> but, but we my, all know my, who Joey is. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, is that like uh, we we never de- I, I didn't develop an early self awareness and understanding of other people at an early age. I would listen to a lot of what people told me and right. just take it as truth. And so I think it took me until college probably to be able to understand myself a little bit better. And yeah, yeah, to answer your question, I just, I think it took me longer than it may most. And I think some people still live by these ideals. We know some people do. And it's, it's a shame because when you have hate in your heart, it's, it's taking up so much that love could fill. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big hippie. I don't know. So. I love that. Isn't it? Isn't it so weird to look back on middle school and high school? Way, it, I think. I think middle school and high school are way more fun and nuanced to analyze than even college, yeah. because so much is happening, and it, it's all the high stakes stuff: puberty, prom, deciding what you want to do as a career all like just crunched up in like seven years. And just like you're saying, 
identity formation is happening all the time. And like click is just another word for vocation where it's like, this is what we do. Like we are the nerds. We are the theater kids who are a little weird. You know, we're the, we're the band kids. We're the kids who created a math club. Yes. We created a math club. You know, you, it's so, yeah, I wish, I don't necessarily wish I could like do it all over again, but I wish I could have had a totally different experience kind of like you're saying that self-awareness of i'm way more curious about all those people that i wasn't curious about sorry um i will say that line again and text my brother not to call (laughs) um (laughs) i'm doing it here he's got another project in indianapolis we want to do together (laughs) um yeah is is there so so here's here's a weird thing that like goes back to, to just the whole conversation of uh, like interviewing and curiosity, the things that we were talking about um, before we started the interview. Um, I remember thinking at like a very early age, um, this is such a weird thing for a young person to think, but I was like, if I, before I die, I think this is because of prison break. There was like all these people on like death row. I was like, I'm going to think about death. Um, I was like, if I know I'm going to die, what would I want before I die? And I, I just had this idea of like sitting down with every person I ever met, whether they were a friend or like a perceived enemy or a teacher or somebody admired and just having like an hour long conversation and just having me like ask them questions and get to know them. And I, it's like weird to now be like interviewing all these like Broadway directors, choreographers and actors who I know personally who are in my community and kind of doing that exercise during a moment where it seems like the world has kind of been on a halt Um, because it's like, Oh, that's, that's still true. Like I still am really interested in turning the unknowns about people into knowns um, and just kind of being real and authentic. And it also like is the perfect ingredients to being a director like if you're not curious about every character whose story you're telling and how you tell that story and how the actor receives that character and communicates that character, if you're not interested in people, you're probably going to be just an awful director and you're going to create terrible things because if you don't care about audiences and how they receive it, um, who are you? You know, who are you doing it for? So um, I, I remember thinking that and like I, I was so, I like submitted to the idea of click in middle school and high school I don't know if you did but I mean I remember ninth grade at Carmel High School like on the catwalk all of the cool kids I was actually talking to Connor Howard about recently um all of the cool kids I'm sure you were in that that group everybody who's in sports who was was staying after for a sport was on this catwalk and and to get to our cars the rest of us who were not cool had to like walk through that group just to like get home. And it was always this, like, I would call it like the self-conscious 30 steps. You know, it's like, (laughs) no matter what kind of great day you had, it's like, I live or die by, you know, this walk. And um, there are obviously just people and many of them are my friends, but like we, I still use that mentality with this person's a celebrity. This person has an award. This person's a millionaire. This person has a third house. This person has this. You know, there are still those identity formation things. Um, And I actually, like, robbed myself of really cool relationships with all those people. Like, I remember there were friends I did those movies with, like, Josh and Lydia and Blair, that, like, I would then text 
but like if they ever asked me to hang out it was like no it's not happening and it's like why why did like why not hang out with these like fun people and it was because like my self-image and identity was so low which turned out to be a great tool for trying to impress people <laughs> with movies um it's like <laughs> i was like if i can't if i can't be friends with these people i'll i'll create a career um but I, yeah, I really regret some of that and I've begun to reverse some of that by reaching out to those people, but. No, that's uh, beautiful. And I hope you don't regret, I, I'm glad I, you may say you regret it, but I'm glad you're taking action on that right. um, instead of just living with it. it. It sucks also because if you can try to think about yourself taking those 30 steps down that hallway and the people you may walk by, I was definitely not one of those people, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, if you if you think about being in their shoes, they're probably thinking something similar, like, "Oh man, that that guy that guy might have his stuff together." You know what I mean? They're thinking totally different things. We build these concepts in our head of right. what we believe everybody has to think because they're a part of a clique. So, right what you think they're thinking is probably, you know what I mean? So, uh, that's, what's been so interesting, like talking to people about that. It's like, so what was that like? And it's like, you know, my mind is just blown with the stories of that experience. Cause you know, again, within your own universe, um, that same metaphor applies to the theater scene. If I walk into a university setting or if I walk into a room and I'm the New York director, I am that cool kid on the catwalk. But then when I come back here and I cast a reading with all these actors that I've ever wanted to work with, I walk right back in and I'm like, okay, here are all the people on the catwalk. Um, but I also- So let me ask, let me ask you, oh, sorry. I, no, I gotta no, no, ask no, you no, right, right there. You, you are developing yourself. You have created this um, new company, Discovering Broadway. You are at a level- where if somebody is a part of an internship that you were once a part of, how can you go about making them feel comfortable so that they don't have these concepts built in their head that they're too scared to talk to you? Mm, that is a great question. Um, I, I, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, the greatest way to help um create comfort for people um, really begins with the initial interface because with people like I just meet a lot of people. Um, and so I don't actually remember everybody, but for the longest time I remembered everybody that I ever met. <clears throat> and it was only when I moved to New York, it was meeting so many different people and going to so many events where there were so many different people that like I would see somebody again and be like, I don't know who this person is. They're looking at me. Do I know them? Oh crap. Did I do a project with them? Oh no. And um, just being able to say, hi, have we met? You know, that ease of someone sending me an email. People send me emails all the time that are interested in getting involved in discovering Broadway. And like my rule is like, I have to respond. Um, and I think that will honestly, I, I have no problem saying this. I think that will change as the years go on. I do think that, you know, I have like five email addresses right now, which is a huge mistake. One's for the company. I have a for-profit Joel Kirk Productions that's in New York. I have the personal email that I had ever since college and another one that's private. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's too much. But that we all know what it feels like to not be answered and not be responded to and not make a connection and feel like the conversation fell flat. 
Um, so I do everything I can when there is that interface, whether they're reaching out to me or someone recommends them or says, Hey, can you connect with this person that I do everything I can to always connect with that person in a meaningful way and learn what it is they want to be doing. And, uh, like there was, um, I have five interns for discovering Broadway, um, or have had five interns for discovering Broadway. And it was like, I wanted to create the easiest internship possible in terms of like time commitment because they're all in school and it was a virtual internship. So it was like, give me two hours a week. You're going to work really hard during those two hours, but just give me two hours a week. Um, and we would coordinate it. And like the first thing I, I did was like spend m multiple meetings really trying to get to know them, how they learn, how they see the world, what really, really, really excites them. Um, cause there's always something behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing. Um, and again, if it comes back down to like, if I can feel the way I felt in the backyard playing the stick, like unabandoned play and freedom and fun in a, on a film set or on a theater piece or with discovering Broadway, then I'm doing it right. So what I'm really trying to get to is that essence of someone's joy um and i yeah i think i think that's all you kind of like can to it can do is like be be receptive um ask questions show you care in little ways <laughs> you know remember people's birthdays um like i all of the kids involved in the internship um, were a part of some show at some point so i made sure to write down when their opening night was um, you know, and you know, it's, it's just kind of all those things that you want to make sure your people are not lost, yeah. um, in the busyness because everybody believes that they work harder than anybody else. Um, and, and people just do in the 21st century work really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, I just believe that, um, I don't, I don't personally know anybody that's just kind of like has their feet up on the desk and isn't working hard. So, um, giving people that, um, shadow uh, that benefit of the doubt and trying to help in any way you can. It just doesn't, it doesn't cost anything to connect people. It doesn't cost anything to give um, people your time if you have it. Um, and it's really rewarding. I don't know if you've had that experience being a mentor to others or being a mentee, but it is such a beneficial relationship. I, most of my friends are in their fifties um, my board members are in their forties, fifties or sixties. Um, and like, so I've had the weird benefit that I'm so grateful for of like going to retirement parties at 23 and like, you know, that just totally changes your worldview. Um, when you've, you've got people that, you know, you're praying for cause they're sick or that you're worried about because their kid is going through something and it's affecting them. Um, or you see somebody, you know, you're, you're in somebody's wedding, um, having, again, it goes back to like me being like, boy, why did I like rob myself of getting to know these, these other people that like you're saying have their own story. Um, I will say life has certainly softened me up and made me more, uh, empathetic. And I do feel like I can sit down and talk with anyone, which is what a, a director should be able to do. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have that before um i'm so i'm i'm curious about your your own story i'm gonna kind of take over for a little bit here um you were you were a bartender for how many years yeah so 
kind of back to what you said. Um, my friends are all, so I live in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, where IU is at. And most of my friends are my old bar regulars, I would say. So I also have 50 plus year old uh, best friends in this town. Being yeah. a college town, everybody leaves. So um, also one of the big reasons for uh, mine and Laura's move that we're excited for. But yeah, I bartended for five years. Um, so it was great to be able to learn people's stories and uh, have an environment that people always wanted to come back to to make their own. And I'm curious, when you were... When you were bartending, because I I worked at a restaurant for years, um, do you remember when you'd get lost in the work and you'd go to your imagination? Do you remember what you were imagining? Get lost in my imagination. I mean, I remember getting to the shift at five o'clock and leaving at two in the morning and be like, where did that time go? But getting lost in my imagination. uh, (laughs) Maybe I I did it wrong. (laughs) They found you in the back next to the ice cooler. Like, what what is he doing? (laughs) He's still back here? That's exactly um, right. As far as imagination, I'm curious as to what you're going towards as far as. conversation that's going on at the tables or imagining like you're just literally imagining something else because simple tasks you know like i would um and and i i admit obviously part of this is connected to like me being a a, like artist and director um but i i would think about the version of myself i wasn't yet Um, and I think that carrot exists for just about everybody where they're like, I see myself doing X. I see myself wearing that suit, driving that car, having that family doing, you know, when they're like, if, if all of us didn't have that hope or that carrot or that image of ourselves, um, and it's interesting because I've, I've worked on a lot of plays, even short films about ideas of suicide and like a recurring theme when you look at shows about suicide and I'm working on a new musical of Hamlet right now. And one of the primary characters commits suicide. The recurring theme is they're either trying to silence a um, like venom or voice that is in their head that like is actually so like visibly loud that it's, it's worth like dying just to silence. There's something that's going on that is worth dying to silence or the hope actually goes away. And so the thought of, continuing anything does not make sense anymore so I, I i like think about this idea of like our perceived future versions of ourselves as being a very important thing that keeps us going and keeps us thinking and feeling and investigating and being curious and so i'm wondering as you've like shifted and grown and learned and experienced different things professionally if you had different different imaginations or impulses or thoughts about the like Matt you wanted to be I guess uh, a lot of mine would stem from once again not having that awareness at the time and having six older siblings I looked at where they were at in life and I remember just continuously saying yeah or p- friends would be like oh are you still at this job and the way they said still they didn't mean to say it a certain way, but I took it a certain way. Just like we talked about earlier, you build these concepts in your head. Yeah. And so I felt like I was not meant to stay in the restaurant industry um, because I felt like there was something better out there. And once again, anybody listening, if you're in the restaurant industry, 
you shouldn't feel that way. It's an incredible job. It teaches you a lot about people. It was yeah. my one of my favorite jobs, so I loved it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I would always talk to uh, entrepreneurs around the Bloomington area, and they would even just share their story with me while they were drinking like a gin and tonic and the rest of their family was fighting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it, it, it always inspired me. And even uh, as I mentioned in my first podcast, the first pe- the first people that actually took a chance on me was a family regular of the store. And I knew at that time when I got an offer, I had to take it because I wanted to get out so badly. And I was also excited for the opportunity to just work with people in that way. So yeah, Yeah, I was always imagining without knowing. Isn't that, it's, that's actually not that uncommon. I remember um, the restaurant I worked at Hillstone, um, there was a bartender who was just like an exceptional human, like, jack of all trades and like one of the like multi-million dollar would be eat lunch there every day and you know $120 lunches every day so we were all like what does he do um they like went into business together because he knew that guy better than he knew someone who he was interviewing because he had seen him work under professional pressure and please people and interact with people for years um at a $14 million a year restaurant. So it's like, it's just so interesting how, um, one, those, those like surprises of life come about, but also, yeah, I, again, it goes back to that empathy thing. It's like those, yeah, the constructs, perceptions, um, people saying things like still or this or, like I, a thought that has been like haunting me for a couple of weeks now, and I'm really grateful for it, is the question, like, are you being ambitious enough? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't feel like I, I have been. Like I only recently did I remember a dream that I had like as that 12-year-old that is like a movie I want to make based on a novel. It, it's a great concept. It would totally work. It would be very hard to make happen, very, very hard to make happen, but I actually know how it could happen. And I'm like, when did I when did I get so lazy? And so I tell my family this and they're like, You're insane. Like lazy they're like, you're you're running this brand new startup nonprofit. You know, COVID nineteen has totally halted the world. You're also working on this like Hamlet New Musical and all this other stuff. What do you mean you're not being ambitious enough? And it, it goes back to something you wrote about these interviews, which was um, success actually is what you say it is, and it will change what what you think about success changes not only every year but probably every month. And I remember people saying that when I was growing up, and I didn't buy it. I was like, no, we all know the earmarks of success. It's it's money. Everybody loves you. You're respected. Da, da, da. But I know a handful of those people who are really sad um, and feel very alone. Um, yeah. And it's weird because social media now has all these reward systems where you're prized for your vulnerability. And so even vulnerability has gotten less authentic in a way because there's a reward system. Um, And it just makes, I don't know, it makes me question everything all the time and people's motives and intentions. Um, Yeah. This is the, the, there's a danger, Matt, when you have a conversation with Joel that like, 
the stream of consciousness makes all interviews uneditable. <laughs> you are never going to be able to edit this. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I had thought about that and people kept asking me, like, how long are you going to do it for? What's this, this, and that? And I'm like, I don't want to have any kind of constructs about what exactly it's going to look like. I kind of want to let it flow and see what it is. And yeah, we're at an hour and 10 minutes, but I don't care. Like, right, I'm gonna, right. I'm, I'm gonna, if you, if you want to listen, you can listen. If you, it's not about that, I'm having fun talking with you, so I don't really care. Right. But, uh, Do you know the uh, entrepreneur and author Tim Ferriss? I've heard of him. I got to listen to one of his podcasts before starting this because I wanted to listen to a bunch of different uh, people who were successful with that. So I, I listened to one of his podcasts, but I do not know him. He has a great principle that I've uh, thought about a lot, which is he interviews people for two hours and he says the first hour is people um, presenting their best of. It's people saying the things they've said in interviews dozens of times, in conversations dozens of times. He's like, but the real meat, the the juicy stuff is that second hour where they've kind of let the guard down. They trust the interviewer. They know they're in good hands. They've said all the things that they're like, quote unquote, supposed to say. And so now if you ask them about something very personal or if you want to go down a couple floors, um, and just get really nuanced, everybody's way more open to that. And I thought that was so interesting because so much of life is like 45-minute coffee meetings, professionally especially. Yeah. And um, I, I've wanted to exercise the principle of, of saying, you know, less, less meetings every day, but for more time. And, and saying, like, you know, let's give ourselves that freedom to, to have – time that we kind of view as sunk time, but we're wrong. Like we've been viewing it wrong. And we've been viewing some of these productivity things entirely wrong. Um, so I, I, I love, I, I, yeah, I just kind of love that thought of, you know, in a rat race world where we're hyper-connected and everything is about three minute clips and likes and, and all, all this stuff that if you actually just extend some of that kind of time with people, inevitably the good stuff will come up. Not that the first hour is not good, but you know, I, so if, I, if you made it to this point, you, <laughs> we're sorry about all that. <laughs> <laughs> what we're trying to say is the first hour is dead. <laughs> you gotta say, you want the good stuff? Start an hour, 13 minutes in. <laughs> Joel takes a long time to warm up. Oh um, no, I mean, it, it, it's true what you're saying too, because I have a bunch of questions written out. I more have like an outline format that I want to, I, I, once again, you're my third interviewee. So I have no idea where I want to end up taking this. Ultimately, I just want to lead people in a path of understanding that it doesn't matter where you are in your life. You can change it to find this success or you right. can find your own success with what you're doing, which is what we've talked about as well. As far as like the restaurant industry and things of that nature, people start to feel bogged down about, they should be doing more because of the concepts we've created in society that it, 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 there are lesser jobs but your happiness is what you make it. You don't need to go out purchasing all these different things. Um, Yeah. And what I was getting at is like, I've been going off the script a lot. I haven't asked you 90% of the questions that I wrote down and I don't care. I can can give shorter answers to the the questions. (laughs) No, I'm glad we, I'd rather talk about the stick in the backyard for two hours, you know? (laughs) That's right. The neighbors were always a little concerned. They're like, what? (laughs) there <laughs> creation neighbors creation is going on over there <laughs> creatively 
Um, and how long have you been, uh, how long has discovering Broadway been in place? So the original idea, which was so different came about in 2018 and at the beginning of 2019, I kind of went all in and was like, this is the only thing I'm focusing on. Um, I actually got rid of my apartment in New York and was like, I have to be in Indiana for probably at least like, I think, I think at that time I was like, this is probably going to take a year to really get going. Um, you know, was obviously not on salary because there, there were no funds and there was no employment and there was no organization at all. There was an idea and some people who were interested in it. And it wasn't until February of 2019 when we were, um, in conversation with somebody about a big movie being adapted into a musical and bringing that to Indianapolis that the whole conversation changed because now we had something. So that took us from zero to 60. Um, and that show actually didn't even inevitably end up coming because there were scheduling conflicts that it had a clear trajectory that um, figured itself out and things changed. They didn't have a director yet. Then they had a director and that director's schedule dictated stuff. Um, but be, just because we had a show that was really interested, an interested party, we had a dialogue, a huge team was formed out of that. But truth be told, in a matter of like five months, I sat down with 628 different people. And I know because I had this Excel sheet of who they were, <laughs> um, like what their jobs were, like a meaningful thing we talked about that meant something to me um, and like how they might be interested in getting involved. And Honestly, I probably should have sat down with like 6,000 people, but it, you know, it's just one of those things where like, it was exhilarating and terrifying. There were great days and really disappointing days. Um, I remember there was a moment where we expected somebody to come in who was really going to jumpstart the organization. Um, and at the last minute, um, a plan changed. And that was December 2018, so before I got rid of the apartment and went to Indy. And I remember feeling quite devastated, and I called one of my mentors right away, um, and she told me the pros and cons of what had just happened and encouraged me to keep going. And I wrote down like three questions, and the first question was, is what I'm trying to do inherently good and still a good idea? The second question was, is what I'm trying to do... Um, still capable of doing good, even if after two years it doesn't work, is what it would do while it exists doing good. Um, and then three was, is it worth the time if in two years it fails or if it never works to, to really invest? And I just made a decision that every day I woke up, if the answer to all three questions was yes, I had to keep going. And they've always been yes, even after really, really devastating things um it's funny because it's kind of like this um restaurant analogy of like we've all been in the kitchen when like somebody drops the salmon or like something crazy happens back there that guests in the restaurant are will never know about and shouldn't know about because that's not the job <laughs> the job is to create a really remarkable experience um you know anybody who says they've had success and haven't made mistakes or haven't learned something or haven't been overzealous or haven't da, 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 I just don't, I don't trust them. Um, I'm happy for them if it's true, <laughs> but but um, on the other side, like I'm so you much. You are no friend of mine. <laughs> well, all right. I want the three of us on an interview, and I want to. I want to interview that. Um, 
but you know, like I'm so grateful for the things I've, I've learned. Um, and like, like you said, all the aspects of the business, they change monthly because of new information, how the world changes, what our audiences are telling us, what, um, the goals and idols and values of Indiana are versus New York. Yes. How are we thinking about how to elevate um, the community in Indiana? You know, it's, it's all of those things that you're constantly evaluating. When you stop asking those questions, you get yourself in trouble. I'm so um, glad you just said that because that's what I want to talk about is in, being in Indiana, you're mm-hmm. going to have different values, just like you mentioned, than yeah. when you would perform it in New York. Um, now, some of these plays uh musicals sorry guys I, i've never watched a musical I, I i watched rent actually a couple years ago with my lady so i've watched nice. one yeah nice. it was great it was great um We're, our goal is to get you to the to theater but it's a cha- our challenge is to get you to see something amazing right not just get you to the theater because <laughs> remember yeah. people, people like me who work in the theater probably hate more theater than you do <laughs> no, no, no. we're so full of self-loathing we're like ah nothing's good <laughs> Yeah. Now, with with, yeah. with having these different, uh, obviously, cities with different values, how yeah. do you go about having certain musicals that, how do you and your team decide um, on more controversial top? Like, some musicals can have more controversial topics. Yeah. Does your team like to spark conversation through these controversies or try to avoid it? And how do you deal with criticism from Indiana when you know it's going to display differently in New York? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think at its, at everyone's essence, um, people want to feel seen, known, and loved, and that like that is a universal theme. That if if you can find that in a show, um, in many ways you, you've kind of won majority already. Especially if the storytelling is compelling and good and interesting. Um, so one thing that I I kind of have learned, and it's, you know, you and I have lived in like a really weird time where like when we were growing up 9-11 then when we were in like high school a recession uh you know and you know 2016 regardless of where anybody falls on the political spectrum was just a very informative year for the world about (laughs) a lot of things you know like a lot of things a lot of really interesting conversations came out of that election um and then the me too movement and now like COVID-19, like we have so many experiences in our like quarter century lives that we can pull from that it's been interesting to see how um, cultural elite thought has actually changed. For the longest time, uh, American thought was typically more, I would say, Protestant conservative. That was probably majority um, culture. Now it is more like if you looked in general media, in general entertainment, um, in general narratives, most of the popular narratives are far more Western uh, liberal individualism. And the, the narrative is it's not about family. It's about you. It's about the individual. It's about you being worth it and you being enough and you having empowerment. Um, it's not about where you came from. It's about where you can go. Um it's, it's not about, you know, being a part of something or being under something. It's about being liberated. Um, and you can see that in music and you can see that in narratives. I mean, one of the biggest songs of the past decade was Let It Go. Um, so all of those themes, you can point to them in a lot of different ways in our movies, films, and TV and songs. 
Um, but we've seen a growing acceptance in the world for, for the idea that um, each individual is endowed with infinite dignity and where people get that idea is different. But for the most part, when we pick a show, um, we are thinking about almost the exact same things that a Broadway producer is thinking about because Indiana values um, will determine in many ways the success of a Broadway show because over 70% of the audiences at Broadway shows are not New Yorkers. They are tourists from Indiana, Iowa, Paris, uh, the UK. Um, I think people would be surprised to learn that even with 18 million people working in Manhattan Island every day, um, majority of those audiences, uh, more than 70% are not New Yorkers. So that's been an interesting thing that I've learned over the years as I've gotten more involved in producing and um, just, just kind of learning way more about all the 46 Broadway theaters, what's in them, how they're running, how they're doing financially on a weekly, um, just, just to look at the box office. And so when we're, so all, all of this to say, it, it's a great question because there definitely are different values um, in New York and Indiana. But what's interesting is the values are about how you live, work, and play. And so if you're in New York um, and young, most of the thought is either have a really great time in New York, get some great things on your resume, and then get a killer job somewhere else in the world if you want to have a family, so don't have a family in New York. Um, or it's the opposite, um, which is like you you go to New York, you live in New York, you are in New York, you want to give it all and make everything happen here, family, all of that. Um, but again, like I think it's, I want to say it's like 75 to 80%. I think 75 to 80% of New Yorkers are single. Um if you went to Carmel or Fishers or Westfield, that ain't the number, <laughs> you know, it's probably like 4%. Yeah. Um, if that, that's actually the big worldview gap is, um, you know, it's, I, I remember I was like just taking a day off from discovering Broadway and taking a walk um, around Carmel. And I didn't see a single person that was alone anywhere. You know, it was, and I was, I was out in public places, to a park to a bar um and i typically don't like you know going anywhere alone um but i remember just seeing like either people were holding hands or holding hands with a kid and that's wonderful and that's that's beautiful um but it, it is clear that um priority and alignment all those things are very different because in new york if you even look at the amount of jobs somebody will have it's not uncommon for somebody to change jobs every single year um, in New York, especially when you're in your twenties and early thirties. So even that is like a crazy concept that there's way more, but, but what's the big difference between Indiana and New York? Um, millions of people, million, you know, not millions of jobs. Well, yeah, millions of jobs, millions of jobs and opportunities, um, wealth, uh, differentiations are just like bundled right together. Um, whereas, you know, in a lot of suburbs all over the world, if you go to a suburb in Connecticut or <clears throat> even New Jersey, um, there are wealthy neighborhoods, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, I'm in Hell's Kitchen. I'm on 43rd and 9th in Manhattan. Um, 
there are people in my apartment complex that are millionaires and there are people who are not millionaires at all. Um, I am not a millionaire. I don't want to, you know, surprise anybody, but I'm not, a millionaire. <laughs> you know, and like when I learned that about my neighbors, I was like, oh wow, they just really want to like save money. But on the other hand, <clears throat> five streets north of me is, is a incredible apartment complex. And you know, you, you have to interview extensively just to be considered. It's crazy, you know? Um, so we're all bundled together and knowing who's, uber wealthy or you know a starving artist it's actually very hard to differentiate the two in yeah. in modern culture um that's another interesting shift in modern culture guys the question was how do we pick shows um and and so all of that to say i i kind of believe in the litmus test of of the ways that producers start to pick shows which is let's have the audience tell us if it's working or not um so for the most part i i will with the help of the executive committee and the board um, look at shows that we're excited by. And that's kind of the first um, litmus test. Cause if, if I say that I think Indiana would be excited about it, even though I'm not excited about it, um, there's actually a less likelihood that people in Indiana would be excited about it. That, and that's just something that I've learned over the years as a director and producer, that if I'm not responding to something, but I say, I bet somebody else would like it. I'm often really wrong. Yeah. Um, so we really see what's exciting, what's going to benefit the most amount of people. And then thirdly, and, you know, really most importantly, what's going to send like electricity through our community that if we say this is coming to Indiana because great art should start in Indiana, that it's going to excite people. It's going to excite restaurant owners. It's going to excite residents. It's going to excite the taxpayers. It's going to excite people who have, um, made a life as an artist in Indiana or the teachers who teach theater in Indiana or the kids who are growing up in Indiana. It's part of the creating discovering Broadway was saying, you know, I wanted to create the world's coolest, like Broadway summer camp <laughs> where the, like I'm hanging out with my Broadway peers and totally blessing my community, which is already so awesome. And I owe, you know, everything to growing up in Carmel with, people who were supportive and who had the art scene, you know, show choir, the musicals, the film, Ivy film course, all that stuff made me who I am as a director um, and set me up for success as a career. I, I went to school at Ball State. I mean, Indiana was, was the foundation. Um, so it was like, what would I want to grow up with in my backyard? Someone making a Broadway show. That'd be amazing. You know, like what, what, why not? Um, and so when I wanted to start discovering Broadway, the first person I reached out to was Mayor Brainerd, actually. And I didn't know him. Um, uh, I didn't know anybody who knew him. And uh, I got some training from uh, a, a business leader who I was friends with just saying like, hey, I've never met with a mayor before. Um, I don't know mayors. Um, how do I talk? How do I present this idea? And, and he was like, you know, amazing. His name is Michael Ramirez. And he, he drilled me. He asked me all the right questions. He made me prepare um, a little pitch deck. I learned what a pitch deck was then. I mean, he cleaned me up, taught me the basics, stuff that I'll never forget and I always use to this day. Um, and I went in there and uh, was expecting him to maybe not like the idea. I knew he was a huge advocate of the arts, but I was like, maybe he's going to hate this. And he was the warmest, most energetic, most exciting person to be around. It was so clear that He's a visionary and a genius. I, I have no problem uh, saying a word that I like rarely ever use, but like Mayor Brainerd is a genius. Like the way he has set up 
Carmel, um, his foresight with roundabouts and the amount of time that that saves people, the amount of gas money that saves people. Um, I mean, the fact that Carmel went from having 20,000 people when you and I were born to over 100,000 now um, yeah. is crazy. Cities don't grow that fast. But part of it is if they didn't have roundabouts, you couldn't get out of any of the shopping. I mean, the traffic would be so bad. The way that he used TIFFs, the way that he um, uses bonds to incentivize businesses to move to Carmel and then you know, allows these huge corporations to save huge money. And then those corporations are inclined to give to the nonprofits and it creates a thriving nonprofit. See, I mean, it's really just, he just has this incredible macro vision for how things work together. And I learned from that and, you know, discovering Broadway is such a, a benefit um, to the community because the more people that learn about Carmel who then champion it back in New York, that doesn't just impact the Broadway community. The Broadway community presents to everyone um, it involves everybody, you know, it, restaurant owners invest in Broadway, lawyers invest in Broadway, we deal with accountants and CPAs and box offices and promoters and marketers, you know, Broadway is the most collaborative thing there is. Um, and so when people are saying, you've got to go see Indiana, you've got to go to Indianapolis, you've got to go to Carmel, you've got to go to Fisher, you've got to see about this place. Um, it helps put my hometown on the map, which it already is. Um, and it, it helps that little Joel that's, you know, excited about the arts, knowing that there is a path um, to having a career and you can, you know, to use your own um, phrase, pave your own path. You can, um, you can, you just have to want it really hard, know the right people or learn who those people are and build their trust, have the resources or learn where the resources are, or find out how you can earn people's trust to give you the resources and have a plan and be open to change because it's going to keep, keep changing. Wow. <laughs> no, uh, no, that would be only no, useful you, part of the interview. You've got to just. This is one of the. Just, one of the what? You have to just cut the interview down to those two minutes and like. Hey, <laughs> this was all, all we like, talked about. That's what you just explained like to everybody on social media. Like, look, Joel goes on a lot of tangents. We don't really know what he's talking about, but. <laughs> no, I mean, you've educated me on a lot of different facets of where I even grew up because I don't always talk about Carmel in a different way. I don't always have. Uh, the same things to say that you might have to say. So I always love getting educated on uh, people like our mayor. Uh, no, so I, I appreciate you sharing all that. Um, and you're giving advice to aspiring directors as well. Um, are you, what, is, what are some long-term goals that you may have for your company? And how are you getting connected with, and if you're not, it's okay, but how are you getting connected with aspiring directors or even in yeah. high school level or something like that? It's a great question. Um, my goals for discovering Broadway, um, first and foremost, or are that we assist in making the creation of Broadway more accessible to people in Indiana, um, more educational for young artists in Indiana, and that, um, New York artists, producers, composers, librettists, um, directors see um, Indiana in a new way. Uh, I think some of the things that come out of um, elections, legislations, um, headlines are not the truth. In other words, you can't distill people down to a click. Um, to a political party, to a 
ideology. Like people are, they're just too complicated. And I know that frustrates everybody, but it's just true. Like humans are too complicated to be distilled down. Um, and like, I, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect when I was first pitching the idea, um, to people in Carmel, uh, of bringing Broadway. I didn't know what parts of the idea people would like or not like. And I have to say, um, my best friends have, my best friendships have been formed from creating this thing. And I didn't know that would happen. I just hoped that a really cool mission would be fulfilled by bringing Broadway to Indiana and elevating and educating and incubating. But, um, the idea that I now have these friendships with people who are so intelligent, so open-minded, so creative in their own right, successful business people, um, it changed my own view of my, my hometown. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of, you know, Hamilton County is the seventh wealthiest county in the country. Um, so that comes with certain feelings when you, when you leave a place that's really wealthy. Um, and honestly, working in New York has its own things uh, that come with it. Um, and so it's, it's, it has been interesting as our world has become more connected and we start learning more about wealth disparities or privilege or white privilege or um, you know, clashing worldviews or any of that stuff that where you start to say, you know, maybe, maybe I'm part of the problem, maybe I'm this or that. But what I learned about um, going back to Carmel, because again, my dad was a minister growing up. And one of the things he talked about a lot was, um, you know, if, if the only thing you want out of life is wealth, you're going to get it. Um, and that's the bad news. You know, he's like, he's like, that might be all you get. (laughs) Um, and so talking about money, you know, growing up, my parents, um, were very conservative with their money. Um, I didn't really explore college options. There were two colleges we could afford. Um, and so it, it was even weird growing up in Carmel where I'd go to my friend's house, which is, you know, a $5 million house on a lake. And then we go back to our house, which is called Old Carmel. And I'm like, why don't we have an Xbox? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but in hindsight, I'm so grateful that I got to know both communities and love them equally and know that the stories are different. And then to learn that my my friend's dad, who, you know, again, has that incredible house, like is is enormously philanthropic and and has made investments that have lost huge money but have created hundreds of jobs. It's, again, I just... I think there's so many times where it's like rich, bad, this group, bad, this political party, bad, this thing, bad. And it's like, I'm sorry, we're not that simple. Um, when I get to know these people that we've deified, um, they're, they're, they're just so much more nuanced and so much more beautiful and so much more complicated. And, um, so, yeah. So again, I'm, I'm trying, I'm actually addressing a couple of the questions you've asked, which is like that difference of audience. And I, I keep looking for the ways that people are um, the same. And it's interesting because I, I consider myself more of a moderate conservative that like really is liberal <laughs> and I don't even know how to explain that to people. Um, but I, I find myself criticizing my, you know, democratic party more than anything else. And then, you know, wanting my conservative friends to be a little easier on our, our democratic friends. Cause we mean, well, we just keep like tripping over ourselves all the time. And then I need them to be more uh, empathetic of my conservative friends. Cause my conservative friends don't want to take responsibility for things that I don't think are their responsibility. And then they, you know, so I 
the worst part is being in the middle of almost every belief like myself, you know, I'm, I grew up Protestant, um, and, uh, am very religious, but I still consider myself like in the middle of religion, learning about the history of religion and all the things that have informed it and being very against a lot of certain practices and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like the worst part about being in the middle of all beliefs is you're kind of the most arrogant because you you know you act you act so cool being like I see your point and I see your point, but it's like, <laughs> that's not fair, Joel. You don't get to take like a superiority complex and disguise it as this empathy. And I do catch myself being really arrogant and smug. Um, and so uh, again, it's been really refreshing to get to know those people to get to know. Um, uh, to demystify some of these beliefs that, that we have. Um, and in terms of young directors, I've had several young directors reach out to me um, and I've sat down with them and asked about their journey. And um, I've been really excited to learn about what they're interested in, what they're passionate about. And honestly, I feel like I'm at a place in my career where the best thing I can do for a young director is if there's space in the room, um, for a young director, they have to be there. Like, I don't think there's any excuse if there's space in the room for somebody to learn for them to not be in that process. We, uh, one of my favorite young rising stars, um, I've gotten to know his parents and they're huge supporters of discovering Broadway. And when I was directing this lab with, uh, this amazing actress, Lilla Crawford, who had just, uh, was just in a movie with Meryl Streep where she was Little Red Riding Hood in the Disney movie Into the Woods. And she just played Annie on Broadway uh, in Annie. And I was like, boy, I bet could learn from this. Even though I don't think he wants to be a director, I think he wants to be an actor. He, there's so many things he could do, but like, there's just so many invaluable things he could learn from this. And I called his parents and I was like, I know Mook's in school and everything, but can he afford to miss two days to come out and do this thing? And I was like, and by the way, I know this is kind of like cuckoo bananas. So if he can't, that's cool. I just want to, I want to know that there's like an empty seat. And if he wants to be my assistant, I think he's a great kid. He's humble. He's respectful. I know he would help the process, not get in the way. Um, and they made it happen. And it was awesome. It was so cool. He, he's one of those like people who's so respectful. He calls you Mr. Joel. And I'm like, no one's ever called me Mr. Joel before. Because once you get to know me, you know that I don't deserve the Mr. before Joel. <laughs> um, but he's, you know, he's a perfect example of what I wish I was when I was younger, which is like... Um, I, I don't think he saw any opportunity um, to be an opportunist in that um, setting. He was really there to learn and be generous and be respectful. Whereas I'm, I'm all, again, I'm always trying to impress. So I, I'm like, how could, how do I turn this opportunity into the next opportunity? And part of that is my survival instinct. But it, I think early on with my energy, um, it turned off some directors who were a little more still and grounded and they're like, I don't know what to do with this ball of energy called Joel. Um, so I either create space for directors or I say, you know what? You just have to do it. Like don't assist, go do it. Like fall, fail, succeed, learn how to raise money, learn how to tell stories, learn how to get people together, learn how to, you know, create a team of people, somebody who does marketing for all your posters, somebody who, you know, records stuff, somebody who's the playwright, create your own system for how you just want to create stuff. Um, but I will say success in terms of ingredients does always boil down to, you know, who you know, who you're trying to get to know, who you're trying to get to be, who you're in conversation with and who can help you 
what resources are at your disposal, whether that's money, whether that's a theater that wants to work with you, whether that's a studio, whether that's a university, whether that's a theater that you can. I remember I was assistant. I was an assistant director as a very early um, teenager at the community theaters, at the regional theaters, at the Lort theaters. Um, and it was I was not getting paid. That wasn't the point. I was like, can I just please observe and help you in any way? And so people took a chance on me. And as long as I didn't blow it, um, I got invited back or they recommended me to somebody else. Um, and I do, you know, I've written a lot of letters of recommendation and I mean every word that's on the page and I, I'm able to talk about these people, um, with an intimate knowledge about their kind of craftsmanship, um, because I've, I've done that early work of getting to know who they are and, um, a lot, some advice, if you're a young director and you're listening to this advice I give people is, um, specific questions, beget specific answers. If you say you want to have a career as a director, I need to know what you mean. If you say you want to have a career as a film director, I need to know what you mean. If you say you want to have a career as a film director doing horror films, now we're getting somewhere. If you are saying you want to be a film director of horror films that uh, are all about Russian folktale caricatures, now we're really getting somewhere. And now we can send you in all of the right directions. But broadness seems like an ally early on in in the career and there's nothing wrong with shooting as many arrows out into the air and see which ones stick and following those that's how everybody gets started but if you can get even more specific specific answers will come and and people join very specific causes but um like if being very broad um, I do find is the enemy of, of finding that specificity to joy because joy is pretty specific. Um, you know, I think about my Netflix account. I, I really watch this, the same like four shows and I really like the same kinds of things. And I really like the same style of music again and again and again. Um, and so the more you can start to actually disqualify the things that you wouldn't like, if you know you don't want to be the kind of director who um, works on Shakespeare, that's great. You should put that in your like cover letters. <laughs> like I hate Shakespeare and why? And, and just like be bold and brassy in yourself and have other people review your you know stuff before you send it out. But um, I, I have found that because people don't know a lot about a topic, they'll go at it the wrong way. I don't know if you've found that, but um, it's kind of like if, if people who are job searching right now, so one in six people have lost their job in the past six weeks, um, which is devastating. I mean, so, you know, every actor I know is not working. So it's one in two of the people I know are not working. Um, so I know that the suffering people are going through intimately. Um, and obviously, you know, discovering Broadway is not programming anything right now. We've, we've suspended operations because how, you know, the, first, the thing that's most important is audience and artists safety. Um, you can't have a good time at the theater if you're not safe. Um, so the whole world is kind of entering this unknown period. And to just want to work could lead to some really reckless decisions, unless it's a survival. You know, again, like what are the ingredients we're playing with? Do you have savings? Do you not have savings? But um, when I think about people starting their careers as directors or actors or artists or business people, I try to say, you know, um, what can you turn into a known right now about the joy you've felt over the years in certain jobs, in certain positions with certain people? Um, it's kind of why at the end of every year I do a weird like year review where I like try to like 
extract five truths and they're like in a couple different questions. One of the questions is like, at what moment was I happiest in, you know, 2019? What moment was I saddest? Um, what happened in 2019 that I want more of in 2020? Um, what is something I only learned in 2019 that I need to apply to 2020? Um, and, and all of those questions is interesting to go back over the years and look at like what, um, cause, cause what you'll, what I've found with happy is it's always tied to a person. It's like always tied to a project with a person. Um, and that, that kind of ties to my belief that like part of the depression that everyone is going through right now is the answer to so many things in life is community and actually getting people together is the illness. Um, and that's like crazy. That's crazy to think about. It's so counterintuitive um, and counterhuman that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to see people go through that. And it's, um, yeah. So anyway, I try to help people however I can. Even now I tell, I tell young artists, now the red tape is gone right now. Um, everyone is being humbled by this in some way, regardless of wealth or status or home size. You know, it doesn't matter. Everyone is um, losing right now um, to some degree. Um, and I, there's some of these articles about some of these companies making huge money right now, like Amazon and all these other things. But, you know, remember, everybody even involved there has something tied to the stock market that's not going well for them. You know, everybody has something, something else that they're having to answer to. You know, Amazon might be growing right now but if life shifts again they've then got to get rid of all these new warehouses they've just built and lay people off and then that goes back in there you know it's you can't there really is no forever exponential growth for anything um and it's funny my friends and i there's this play i'm uh, developing with a writer uh, i'm the director on the project and the whole like idea of the show was like what would it cause what would it require for America to fall? And like, you know, Rome fell. Nobody thought Rome was going to fall. And the, the reality is nobody thinks they're ever going to fall. Um, and and uh, it, just hearing different people interviewing different um, theorists um, and, you know, philosophers, you know, we have Columbia here and, and there's a great, um, there's lots of academics there and, and a lot of research we've been pulling from professors there and certain articles they've written. Um and it's, it's just, we're, we're going through something that's so kind of crazy that I, I'm encouraging artists. It's like, reach out to everybody you ever wanted to reach out to. Who cares? Like, you know, we're, we're all feeling a crush in our identity. We're all feeling less than ourselves. The world is feeling less than it ought to be because it, it shouldn't be this way. Um, so right now is a great time to reach out to theaters, to studios, to, to directors you want to, you want to talk to. Um, and and people are um, looking for meaningful connection right now in a very different way. And I think you can make that connection. Yeah. And uh, that goes across the board with whatever industry you're in, obviously, or even if you're looking for a new job, this is the perfect time to connect with either hiring managers or people in those companies, because at the end of the day, they want to connect as well. And if you have something worthwhile saying, or at least connecting, they're going to want to talk to you. Um, Right. So I love that you mentioned that. And everybody, like, 
I think there's also this fear of like, well, I don't want to, you know, ask for something. They'll know what I'm up to. I'm like, everybody knows <laughs> that we everyone all want knows to what you're up and, to. <laughs> right, right, right. We, you know, and either they, if somebody's, I don't know, closed off about that, then maybe they're not the person you want to be connecting with right now, or maybe their their view on that needs to change, or maybe it really helps and behooves you to just come out and say it and be like, I am looking for a job right now. I'm not trying to put you in a position where you feel like you have to give me a job right now. Um, what I really crave in this season of life is connecting to somebody and talking about what I'm going through. Cause you've always had really good ideas and insight and you're a business leader. I really respect. Do you have 15 minutes for a phone call where I can pick your brain? Um, and again, yeah, I, I, mess- I messaged Joel at three in the morning, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Let's do it. <laughs> I was up. <laughs> um, yeah, and I love that. So again, like, um, yeah, the fear center of the brain. I remember there was a month before I moved out to New York where I had like a huge revelation. I was like, again, I was 20 years old and I was still in college. And I, what ended up happening, I, I didn't tell the full story. I moved out here, got an internship. And after three weeks, I, I was like, I think I have to stay permanently because at that point the first Broadway show I went to here um I recognized the writer outside the Broadway house and so I just like gave him a thumbs up like I had no idea who he was personally I just gave him a thumbs up and he runs over to me and he he grabs me by the arms and he says what do you think have you seen the show what what are people saying and I was like oh no I'm just I'm going to it tonight I'm I'm super excited this is so exciting you have like a Broadway show that's cool and I had no idea he was like a legendary writer he was the master he was the the head of the master's program of playwriting at carnegie mellon he had won countless awards um you know he walked into a room and everybody in the theater world knew who he was and i just gave him a thumbs up and he pulled me into the theater and we're both you know just talking for 30 minutes before the show he's asking me who i am where i'm from what's going on um and i i, I was so blown away by how accessible he made himself to me that I made a like completely crazy decision that I'm so grateful I made, which was, I was like, I have to stay here permanently because I can't have a conversation like that back at Ball State. And I've learned everything I, I need to learn. And they have actually prepared me for this moment. I couldn't have this moment without them. And they were very generous and they granted me uh, a degree a year and a half early. Um, and you know, there were certain stipulations that went along with that and some things I needed to do in New York, but I just kept working as a director that that it kind of crossed out all of the qualifications for that. So I was very lucky to move to the city while I was, you know, still underage. I had no idea what I was doing. The first job I accepted was minimum wage, which made no sense. Again, I, I am not the brightest person and I, I will never find myself of being the, the brightest. I don't really want to be the brightest um, person in a room because then I, I the ceiling for learning is is bad but again in that moment I learned people were accessible um, people want to connect and have a meaningful conversation and so I got his email like through Google because I'm pretty good at finding people's emails um, sent him a note about how meaningful it was to connect to him and said I wanted to buy him lunch and he took me out for lunch and that's when I was like okay now I need to call my department chair and ask if if we can make this this thing happen um, and, the, and Bill Jenkins and Karen Kessler at Ball State really were my my saviors. And I, again, owe my career to them helping me start it here. And um, they gave me huge, huge opportunities and took a chance on me, just like the people you were talking about at that restaurant. You, you don't feel worthy of that opportunity um, when it's actually offered. 
you feel totally worthy of it every moment up until, and you're, I can totally do this. I should totally do this. I'm yeah, I'm ambitious. I need to do this. I need to do this. Then they offer it to you, and you feel like a fraud all of a sudden. And you know, yeah, um, yeah it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, yeah, when they asked you to join to join them. Um, was that something you guys had started a conversation about? How, what, how did, you know, every, every, everybody wants, when they want to learn about how somebody becomes successful, it's always how. It's like, let's reverse engineer this success narrative. Um, do you remember the evolution of what brought you to that job right out of bartending? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I got to meet this family probably two years prior to working with them working for them. And I, I had dropped out a couple of times. And it's funny, I didn't mention this in my fir- first podcast, but one of the things they told me when they offered me the job is they were waiting for me to finish college because they didn't want to offer me the spot before that and take away the idea of me being out of college. Because if they would have offered me this job before that, I probably never would have finished right away, you know? So um, I'm very thankful that they did wait. It has opened up other doors that I don't think I would have gotten without that. But yeah, so uh, just I just created the relationship by being genuine with them. Every single time they came in, I made sure to go to the front like I was a manager of the restaurant, say hello to them, even if I wasn't serving them. Um, just created that relationship through asking them questions about their life. And so one day they came up to me and just said, hey, I want to talk to you about a position. We'd love to see if you want to get dinner tonight. I was like, yeah, okay, let's get dinner. So we went out and uh, they talked about it. I had no idea what sales was about. As I mentioned in my first podcast, I thought salespeople were slimy and all these other things that uh, I would find to be untrue or you right. can find it out. You can find anything out there if you look hard enough for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's how that evolved. And from there, it just continued to grow relationships. So the thing I've learned in sales is I know I can get any job that I want as long as I create that relationship and kind of right. like what you're saying is you can't be afraid to ask. You either find out who the person is or find the resources to get who that person is and just ask. So um, I think that's one yeah. thing you mentioned a couple times that's very important. Yeah. It, like I kind of have a one track mind about like how, how do we get this thing done? Like how do we make this work? How do we make this thing successful? And if that door's locked, let's look for the window. And if the window's locked, let's go through the chimney. And if not that, let's like blow the house down. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I really, um, it's a gift and a curse. It like really is a gift and a curse. Um, because some people deeply admire that persistence and respect it. And there's a very respectful way to go about it. Um, and then some people are like, yeah, it's not happening. And then sometimes it requires me being like, Oh, like this person is going to just keep leading me on, you know, or like they, they just really appreciate the attention um, and the friendship. And that's great. Let's keep the friendship. And I need to stop having this expectation that this thing's going to, going to happen. You know Um, it's a, it's a default of driven people um, is, you know, it's not, it's not all perfect just because you're uh, obsessed with something or driven with something or, or, um, and I mean, you hear about this all the time with, with certainly in the, the press, but with relationships. I mean, I, I remember when I was in the throes of discovering Broadway, there was 
um, a month where we had had a bunch of progress. We hadn't yet secured our first, the first show we wanted to bring out. And um, my parents had just accepted a job in Tennessee. And so they were moving. Um, and I was, I was living with them because I was still, um, you know, why, if you're going to start up a company and not have a salary, it's really great if you can live for free, <laughs> you know, um, cause I still didn't even know how it was going to work out. And yeah. it was the perfect wrench that was thrown in at the perfect moment because I was starting to get really sad. And I don't, I don't necessarily know what about, I think if I like interviewed myself at that time, I would have said like, I always want things to happen faster than they happen. I want people to trust me faster than they can trust me. Um, and that's a hard thing because I'm a story seller. I, um, you know, tell stories and then I sell stories. It's like, I don't work in an environment where I'm selling life insurance, a concept that people understand that has been sold many, many times where there's many successful companies that sell life insurance. I'm coming to people and saying, here's a brand new thing. Hamlet as a musical. You've never heard of it. You didn't know you wanted to see it. And I'm going to convince you to get interested in it before we have any music for it. And I think you should invest. That That's hard. Um, and I've gotten way better at, again, like once you have a proof of concept and you can build that trust and you can show people what you're building and um, you don't destroy that trust, um, you can get really, really far. But I do work in a field that like, I don't know if I could make it any easier for myself because we're in the the game of imagination of hoping that someone I mean, can you imagine trying to explain like hamilton or rent to somebody and being like just trust me hip-hop musical about <laughs> our founding fathers it's going to be worth a couple billion dollars you know like no <laughs> and there were theaters that turned it down after being presented the show oh, so yeah. It's, it's just one of those things where like, and again, another thing I've learned about success is like, um, first of all, if people call you successful, you're, you're, you laugh. Cause like, I certainly don't feel successful. And again, it's the version of success that I'm always chasing, but, um, for every one success I had, there's a hundred things that didn't work. Yeah. And, um, I hope I don't, um, grow cautious of trying over the years because um, I have sat down with some people who are like hey I'm at a I'm at a point where I can't fail you know or I can't make um, I can't make a musical that doesn't work and it's like entertainment is just so different than the other um, arenas that like how many Academy Awards does Steven Spielberg have after like working on hundreds of movies like it, it that's crazy to think about that like the, with the greatest living directors has not always had success, you know, like mostly has not had success, but yeah. has had these like five films that were radically successful. Um, and again, people who are not in that space don't think of the failure as happening that often. Um, it's the same thing. Like I think about SNL, it's like there are five sketches that come to mind in the like how many decades of SNL that are really memorable. And that's just part of the game is you keep creating, 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 creating. Things are going to mean different. Uh, things are going to be received differently to different uh, people, but as long as you love it, and that's why I want to come back to that idea of like, um, 
everything is going to be hard um, that is risky and ambitious and meaningful to you. Marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. Business is hard. Having kids is hard. It's all hard. So it's marriage that's really hard. I've heard, I don't know this, but I've heard is a lot more enjoyable when you really love the person. So that, that rule should really apply to our, our work. Um, and uh, we we should probably get rid of the saying that, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life because that's just so unhealthy. <laughs> You're like, because that's not true at all. <laughs> I was like, it's not true in the slightest. Um, yeah. yeah. And again, I don't, maybe, maybe you believe that and I've just like stepped on your most, most valued belief. <laughs> I mean, no, you're, I, I'm crying a little bit, but I'm trying to pick it back up so that I can do right. this interview. That's right. Um, Is there something you believe now that you didn't believe a couple of years ago, like when you were bartending that like has changed how you live? I'll say there's something I believe now that I believed as a kid that I lost in between this time is uh, that I can do anything that I want. Um, when yeah. I was a kid, I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be all these things and society tells you, you can't. And <clears throat> I listened, like I told you with my friends and with a lot of other concepts in my life, I listened and I took it as it was. And unfortunately, the result was I didn't get to do some of those things. Um, I'm glad I've been able to reflect more and understand that that's not important, that we're only on this earth for so long. Uh, whatever anyone's religious beliefs are, I want to, it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me. I right. still have this amount of life and I want to make it as meaningful as possible. So I'm going to do whatever I can to get to wherever I want to be is where I'm at. Yeah. You know, that's another important lesson I feel like I learned in 2019, which was I'm a very impressionable person. I mean, hence the idea of like, let's create this short film to impress all the people that I don't talk to anyway. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. how crazy the concept is it to be like, I have to please people. I will never have a conversation with, <laughs> you know, but like, that's the heart of entertainment. Um, for the longest time I took people's word as truth. Um, if somebody said to me, you can't, you know, start a nonprofit in four months, you can't, you know, create a successful musical, um, in six months, you can't have a Broadway show run. That's only $2 million. They now have to be 10 million. I used to be like, okay. And like, totally believe that. Um, which is crazy since like, I grew up playing with a stick, you know, it's like, it's like, (laughs) why didn't I know that like humans are speaking about their experiences. And so take, listen, um, but considering it as like an unchanging truth is dangerous. And I I really didn't um, question the questions. There's a really interesting book called um, Religion in Human Evolution. And one of the things it talks about is the axial age, which is, this time in you know macroevolution where uh, Homo sapiens for the first time started thinking about their thoughts. So rather than just thinking a thing, they started having a meta conversation about why do I have that thought? You know what I mean? Like hyper analysis. Yeah. And it's so interesting because they said out of that change came all of these new philosophies and um, different conversations and different ways of looking at government. You know what I mean? And I, I find myself not um, 
and it kind of, kind of comes back down to religion, but maybe if I even took two steps back away from religion and got to belief itself, belief in anything, um, myself, career, things that I like, family, all those things, just, just basic, um, beliefs. It's like what has strengthened my resolve is, um, not only questioning my belief in things, but questioning my disbelief in things, um, that, you know, it, it was easy in my early twenties to, to just think that like our government's corrupt. Everyone's politician is evil. This is that, this is that. And then you kind of get in there and you're like, boy, now that I know what it's like to raise money behind a mission and, you know, go to a breakfast that's a fundraiser, a lunch that's a fundraiser, a dinner where I'm raising money, and then drinks and a dessert with someone who's raising money. And that's a, that's my day off. Um, and being like, boy, how do these people raise millions of dollars just so that they can, you know, protect their constituents and then have all these, again, it, like we've been talking about this whole time, digging deeper is really the theme of this whole conversation has been like, how do you just dig deeper into people and what they're actually going through when I started questioning my questions and saying, well, why do I believe this thing? So, so, um, with such confidence or, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up a Christian, did believe in God later. And now I've come back to, um, believing, but I always say like, I believe less than anybody else, <laughs> you know, yes. again, it's like, it goes back to what I was saying about being that guy who's in between. I'm like, but I'm better because of that, you know, yeah. it, Everybody thinks they're right. So to some degree, everybody thinks they have that same um, like level of healthy uh, confidence that could become narcissism. But I've, I've, I've kind of found that ground of saying, you know, um, always questioning for the sake of, of, of learning what is most true and most meaningful. And I love, um, yeah, I love that you're saying that because um, recently one of my mentors had, told me about i wouldn't be able to say if this is from a book or from some ancient culture but just the five whys and you just ask yourself why five times to try to get to a deeper meaning of what it is and the reason why you're doing it so i was saying one of my goals is to work out and he was like why and i was like uh, i just want to be healthier why uh, because i could i could lose a little extra weight well why does that matter because uh, i care what people think why do you care what people think? So you ask yourself five whys until you get down to that deep meaning of, okay, this is actually either a ridiculous goal or I need to work on um, how I process these concepts that we create in our culture. Um, I think it's also a reason to how people can once again find value in their everyday job is they might be working for the wrong reasons. And if somebody is going into work every day thinking of how much money they're going to make versus how they're impacting their community, how they're helping this and that, I think people could start to work a much happier life. Yeah. No, it's funny. Um, <laughs> this is a gross uh, oversimplification, but I, I once said I do everything for two reasons, to have fun and impress girls. <laughs> and uh it's probably true like like i don't do you know like why do you want to make a lot of money like i'm fine you know you know what i mean like like we're worst 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 case scenario if like everything fell apart and like couldn't find employment for years and discovering broadway imploded and everything fell apart 
like I'm just very lucky. I have parents, I have family, you know, they all chose a more normal life and they've been successful because they're all ambitious. Um, I know I would be fine because, you know, God who I believe in provides and they provide and all that stuff. But like, why do I want a lot of money? <laughs> why do I want like, um, to be impressive with career? Why do I want, you know, cause at my essence, I actually just want to have fun in the career. Like my favorite moments as a director were a show that almost nobody saw at Ball State. That was the best directing I've ever done. Um, it was a play about six women who were nurses in Vietnam and um, they've all been forgotten about in history and nobody wrote their story. So decades later, somebody found out who the nurses were and wrote their stories in a book. Um, and the whole play ends with a veteran that his life was saved because of the nurses and he comes up to them at a memorial service um, and the nurse recognizes him like decades later and like touches the wound she healed. And there's this guy in the corner of the theater who's been making noise the whole show. It's like a 75 minute show. And I'm like, what is going on? Come to find out he was in Vietnam. And the minute the play started, he felt like he was back there. Like he could recognize every reference oh, wow. to TV shows, the way people were talking, um, the music that was in the show. And, and he just wrote this like, thank you letter to the cast. And like, you want to talk about a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I knew this show meant a lot to me. I've seen audiences cry and laugh and, you know, have all these standing ovations. It's great. Yay. We're sold out and we got a great review. Yay. But when you meet somebody who did the thing you're talking about and like you realize just the like responsibility you had to tell their story and that it meant something to them 40 years after Vietnam. I mean, it, that was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And so, you know, it's not a great press release that, you know, 26 year old Joel is like the greatest work I ever did. I was, <laughs> you know, but like hindsight thinking about the most meaningful life moments like that, the two, you know, full weeks that that show ran at the Cave Theater and the people who came and the professors who saw me differently after that and the students who saw me differently after that. Um, you know, that one professor that I've been trying to please for three years who, you know, had never, you know, given me a single compliment who shook my hand and said, I was like, is it any good? And he's like, no. And he like reaches out his hand and he said, it's wonderful. And I was like, yeah. Um, you know, what, what is that really about? Was that really about, you know, pleasing girls? No, that was more about like having fun or was, you know, I don't know. I obviously do not do things just to please girls and, you know, have fun. But I, I do find that, um, you know, it's, it's funny you talk about working out. I have a very high metabolism. So even if I did work out or try to do things that would really shift my physique, it is very hard to do. And I learned that after years of working out and doing insanity every day. And so I went to a trainer at Ball State who is professional and he trains everybody in making everybody really fit and getting just completely transforming their, their bodies if need be. Um, and you know, he's obviously like a, a stunt coordinator and just all that. I mean, he's a rock. He's, he's like, I think he's like 70 and he looks 40. It's, it's stupid. And I went to him and I was like, here's my problem. Here's my metabolism. Here's this. And he gave me, he created a workout plan for me. And he's like, you're going to be at the gym two hours a day for five days. And this day you'll do legs. This day you'll do core. This day you'll do this. Um, 
And after four, he's like, you're not going to see anything for about 14, 20 weeks because of your metabolism. But also know that you will see big results and you can never stop. Because if you stop, you will lose it all um, fast. And so for like two years, I I worked out pretty intensely in, in college. And um, like my brothers will joke about it because I, I stopped. Um, and they're like, remember when you were jacked? Um, and keep in mind, Kirk family jacked is not the normal human being jacked. Um, it's like, oh, that's fine. Um, you know, he probably jogs. That's what it looks like. Um, but if you were asking me why I really was working out, it was so that I would look better to um, like people I was trying to date or look more impressive and more confident and all of those things. And I don't work out anymore. Um, I, I exercise, but I, again, that shift in thinking happened when like I would be in relationships with really wonderful people when I wasn't working out. And I was like, Oh, you, you don't mind that I look like a stick. Okay, fine. And like, it, it was like, what do I want to do with my days? I actually created this like real fear of protein shakes and energy drinks. Oh, yeah. and, the whole rabbit hole. Oh, and the whole smell of the gym and those mats. And um, again, if you're listening to this and you work out, what I'm trying to <laughs> say is you're wasting your life. No, no, no. I'm kidding. But um, yeah, for me, it was, it was totally something else. It was, it was status. It was, you know, confidence to be worthy of somebody else. And um, I'm still healthy. Like I'm healthy now. I just yeah. don't spend 10 hours of the day. <laughs> yeah, I love the five whys. That's great. I don't ask five whys. I yeah, ask, that's great. you I probably ask, have only been asking four your whole life. So I know I level up, Joel. <laughs> level up. Um, yeah, that's great. Where? So remind me. You said you met. We had listeners. Matt and I had a conversation before we started the interview. Um, you said you met your girlfriend at work or in Bloomington at school. Uh, a little bit of both there. Uh, so okay. in Bloomington at a restaurant. It's called Scotty's Brew House. If you ever knew of it oh, while yeah. you're in Indiana, uh, they shut down uh, in the last year. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, but uh, no, yeah, that's where we met. Uh, worked there for about, I worked there for five years. So did she. And then um, after college, we just decided to stick around this town. So I've been here for about eight years now. That's okay. crazy to say. And we're uh, moving to Chicago here in the next about three weeks. That is so exciting. What are you most terrified about? That's the thing. Uh, if you would have asked me that last year, I would have said picking up and leaving. I would have said I'm comfortable here. Uh, I'm I'm kind of ready. Um, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to see what's there. I do not. You said one in six people. I was one of those people. Uh, so yeah. I don't currently have a job right now, but that doesn't frighten me in the slightest um, because I feel I have a confidence that I haven't had in a long time. And so I'm most excited to see what I'm going to be doing once I get to that town. I'd say uh, most ter- I'm not really terrified, but like I, I, it is a little uh, weird moving away from family, um, as you can maybe attest to as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm an hour away as it is in Bloomington, but I'll be I'll be two hours away, so not too much further. But um, just knowing where a lot of my friends are and moving away from that. And wanting to make sure that I do create a community that's healthy for me as well. Because we're moving back to her hometown. Couldn't be more excited for that. I want to make sure that I'm cultivating a community for myself as well. Yeah. 
You know, that is... Yeah, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about and unpack. I mean, if if someone's listening to this, I, I'm going to... If you're still here. If you don't have a life... Um, <laughs> no, I, hey, I, I would know. This is great. Um, if you are listening to this, you probably are looking to change something about your life. Um, and all of us are, even those of us who look like we're quote unquote finished or set or successful or whatever. Um, all of us are. And I think now it's like, granted that there's obviously catastrophes going on everywhere and nobody wants COVID-19 to happen, period. What I can do with what I've been given is part of my mission always. What can I do right now? Um, I mean, the whole reason I started interviewing these Broadway stars was we couldn't do any of our master classes because we couldn't have any kids gathering. It was unsafe. But I made a promise to the community that I was going to create an educational setting where they could learn from people they respected. They weren't going to be stars. They were going to be Broadway regulars that, that are big deals and awesome and successful professionals. But I was like, boy, when we have to cancel all this stuff, I have to over, um, I have to top myself and I, I, I owe these kids something and I want to provide something to them. Um, and it was also very exciting for me to get to ask these kids, what, who do you want to hear from? What questions do you want to ask? And they create the question, you know, they, we've picked the artists that they've picked and that's been awesome that all these artists have said yes. Um, but by the same token, like, I wish I had done this years ago. Like I wish I did it years ago. Um, And now is a time to do so many things. Um, Because again, the red tape is gone. Um, When security itself is gone, the the Seth Godin question, actually it might be a Tim Ferriss question. I'm sure they both would ask this question. These entrepreneurial um, think leaders. Um, What is the worst thing that could happen? That is a great question that I don't ask myself enough. What is the worst thing that can happen? You know, if discovering Broadway fails, if the musical I'm working on fails, if the directing career doesn't go the way I want it to, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, typically the answer, like outside of some crazy stuff, typically the answer is not that bad um, because most things don't last. Um, most restaurants will not last. Uh, most movies will be forgotten. Most people will be forgotten. Um, and that's cool. Like this, this idea of like, I always think that like restaurants exist because like the retired people who worked at the like really successful company, you know, like all the Eli Lilly um, retirees, they could either like start a nonprofit together or they're like, we really need more barbecue in Indianapolis. And that's how they want to live the rest of their days. They want to have barbecue and it benefits the community it's essentially a donation. I mean, restaurants are essentially donations instead of, you know, investments, but they're everywhere because we need them and we want them. And life isn't about the ROI. It's about the experience. So if while you're here, you have a you know killer restaurant for three years that works and employs people and creates joy in a space for people to gather and love well and get to know each other, that's awesome. Why is the only metric of success, you know, how, how big your company is or if it goes public or all this other stuff. So um, that is something that I think millennials are leading the way in of saying we want experiences more than material uh, things because it all fades away. And while we are here, 
let's really live it up. I mean, we see this with the amount of money that millennials spend on traveling every year. Um, I, I don't, I'm actually not a part of that group. I wish I was that ambitious to like, just want to get up and travel for a week or go to Ireland or go overseas. I've never left America. I don't have a passport yet. Um, I'm just not, um, uh, I don't have that talent. I think it is a talent to actually want to just explore land and cultures and other things. Like I just love my work so much that I don't ever want to leave it. And I have a fear of actually stepping out of it for time, which is bad. And I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm especially inspired by people like you who are going to Chicago. My friend, Doug Lyons, who's a, a composer of new musicals. I'm, I just hired him on a show we're working on together. He was telling me, he's like, I think I want to just like go to LA and explore and see what's out there. And I was like, yeah, why not? Like you literally have no reason to not go yeah. right now. No traffic. <laughs> um, and again, we are not happy about that, but we can't, you and I cannot change that. We can play our part to end it. But right now it's like, there's time we've been given. Um, and why not just explore that stuff? Why not go to a new city? Why not research? Um, all the while because so much of the world is out of work. And I, I think in, if, if the stimulus, if more stimulus packages don't come and if things don't change in the next couple months, um, I think it's going to go from one out of six people being unemployed to like two or three out of six people being unemployed. Um, because our world really depends on the things that are shutting down. And, um, they're, they're, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's crazy. So part of me, I was just talking to a friend of mine who got laid off and is looking for work. And I said, you know, if you're wrestling with any self-image issues right now, what what's actually happening is not that, you know, you were in charge of driving a, you know, being the engineer and, and driver of a train and you broke the train and now it stopped. What's happened is there's a bunch of people standing on the, on the tracks a mile ahead and the train has to stop and all of us have to get off temporarily um, for the safety of the people in front. Um, but there's going to be a time where they get off the tracks safely, or we hope as many of them get off safely and we all get back on again. Um, and it's not your fault. Number one, um, two, you're doing a brave thing. You're doing a wonderful thing. Um, if you're doing the right thing and it hurts, it hurts to do that thing. Um, but that again, there is going to be an up and running again. It's going to be new. It's not going to be the same, but um, it's, it's so hard for any of us to see 2024 or 2028 or who we're going to be in a couple of years. But um, I think people are lying if they're like, yeah, no, I haven't felt sad or blamed myself or thought of this or thought of that. We all are. We're all going through these mood swings of, well, there's nothing I can do. Dang it, I should be doing more. I want to read. I don't want to read. I want to sleep. I'm going to bed. You know, that is, um, this is such an interesting moment to be interviewed because what we're creating right now is an archive of a moment that has never happened in this way. Um, I have my friend Laura Palmer, who's a producer of Jimmy Kimmel. She and her husband, I think at the end of every day, do like a five minute they just create a five minute video of like what their day was like, what's happening, where their mind space is at. And they're like, we're going to show our kids this in 20 years. And I'm like, that is amazing. That's so cool. And right now my archive are these interviews. Um, 
and I, I'm creating a pro and con list of COVID-19, things that have gone well, things have not gone well, things that have worked in the economy because of this moment, things that haven't, things that people are trying or things that people believe now that they didn't believe a month ago. Um, it's so much for any human to comprehend and navigate through, which is why I'm glad you're saying as you move to Chicago, the, the thing you're looking for is community because um, I, I thoroughly believe the answers to so many of our questions, um, certainly maybe not to solving depression, aspects of depression that are purely chemical, but certainly at decreasing its affliction. Um, certainly, you know, people who go through divorces or lose a job, the ways that those things are healed and solved are through community. Um, and I just think that is like getting plugged in, um, is probably going to be even easier right now, again, with the whole idea of the red tape being gone. And there'll be people who are so excited. You've decided now to move there. Um, well, it's funny you talk about um, community in that light because I had seen a research study. I think it was a TED Talk as well. It was pretty interesting, and it talked about um, the main studies that were done on drug addiction had to do with mice that were isolated, and they would be given uh, maybe heroin or something, um, and they would continue to go back to it until it died. So that was our basic of understanding of how drug addiction worked. Is oh. You will continue to go back. You continue to go back. Um, until you die, basically. But what they didn't add in that study were other mice. So more recently, somebody had conducted a study where uh, they may have had, none of these numbers are going to be right, by the way, people, uh, maybe had five to ten mice, and they still had that um, container of water laced with heroin. And what they found was, even though they would give it to all of them once, they would not go back to it because they had a community of mice that they wanted to be with which was stronger than wanting to go back for that um, urge, if you will. Wow. I think what you're saying is very interesting, but yeah. Yeah. It's um, be more like the mice. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't take anything out of this conversation, anything else, be more like the mice. All right, Joel, what is one piece of advice you have for our audience? Um, I am gonna. I I want to talk to you after this because I am so curious about how I'm even going to do this. Uh, You seem like someone who you seem like someone who is very knowledgeable on uh, getting things uploaded, and in that sense, uh, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more, um, either later tonight or tomorrow, on how to get this because I have a two-hour limit of podcasts a month, and I want to I want to upload all of these. I don't want to edit anything. I want it in an archive. So we'll talk. I there'll know there'll be plenty of stuff for you to easily. <laughs> it should all. Here's the answer, Matt. You can get a 10 minute interview out of this three hour conversation by finding the moments in the interview where I say, but your question was X. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, one more piece of advice. Is that what you, you wanted me to end with? Yep. Um, Hmm. My my best friend David Owens said this about me in a board meeting, and I think it's a great way to live. He, and I didn't know this about me until someone outside of myself told me. He said, 
this is our first board meeting for Discovering Broadway in September of 2019. He said, um, we were, everybody was saying how they knew me. And he said, I've known Joel for a while. We've been best friends. We went to Carmel High School. We were in choir together. We've done this. And we've stayed connected. And Joel has always been unapologetically ambitious. And he just put it so succinctly and so um, accurately. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm apologetic about mistakes I make, about if an art doesn't come out the way I want it to, if the team I built doesn't work together, if audiences don't receive what I wanted to. There's all those things that you can apologize for later and whatever, whatever, whatever. But being unapologetically ambitious um, is, is important. And underneath it all, of course, if you're doing it with respect and trying to love people and trying to create something that actually helps human flourishing, um, then that's the real key. But I, I would encourage people, um, I think everybody has great ideas. I think everybody has really interesting thoughts. I think everybody's story is really interesting. And I think everyone is endowed with infinite dignity. And um, if I didn't believe those things, I'd be a terrible director and a terrible nonprofit artistic director um, and a terrible producer. And um, I hope people know that as you research ways to be inspired and to learn how to do things, the research will actually only take you so far. It's actually like 10% of it. Um, the other 90% is doing it. And that's the terrifying part. And that took me years to do because I, I would rather just keep reading success stories and being inspired and then not have to do the really hard work. But um, I would encourage you be unapologetically ambitious, do the research, be respectful, be loving, you know, advance human flourishing, but then go do it. I love that piece of advice, my man. Thank you so much. You got uh, it. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. I'll be sure to add a link of your site on the description. Um, and then any other way that people can find you. I know you have joelkirk.org as well and a couple other uh, ways. So we'll talk about whatever you want me to add. But yeah, if anyone listening has someone who they admire and want to recommend for this show, please send me a message at paveyourownpathpodcast at gmail.com. If you yourself feel successful, let me interview you. I uh, hope you guys learned something today. Please, once again, ask yourself, how do I bring value? Uh, have a wonderful day and pave your own path. Thank you.